Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Moon, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Hello, Darren. How are you doing? I'm doing very well indeed. And we've got two very special guests joining us. Uh, from When Irish Eyes Are Watching, we have the wonderful uh, Alex Harris. How are you? Hello. How are you? And from Film in Dublin and the Breakout Row podcast, we have Luke Dunn. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. And it's great because we are finally, finally, finally finished working through our Christmas backlog because we're covering the last new entry on the list that came over during our Christmas break, which is Rian Johnson's 2019 whodunit mystery, Knives Out. This is where we're covering 2019 movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's, the, it's the spring of 2019 is what we're doing now, apparently. Spring? <laughs> <laughs> well, it will still be. This will be releasing around about the, the end of February, hopefully. A little bit of luck. 2020? Yes. Is, Sorry, yeah. Is it still in the 250? No, no, it's not. Okay, um, well, I'm going to go then. <laughs> yeah, we're, this, this is not what the concept of the podcast is. It originally came in in January 2019. You remember January 2019? It only t- feels like it was 20 years ago. TikTok was really popular. <laughs> um, Mr. Peanut had just died. Um, but yes, so uh, very briefly, Knives Out, uh, which is an interesting film to cover. A lot of films came into the list over uh, the kind of winter period in 2019 20 we prioritized the covering of the Oscar nominees because eight of the nine Best Picture nominees managed to sneak into the list. Jojo Rabbit was the only one that didn't, which is interesting. Um, And so we kind of put Knives Out on the back burner. Uh, Knives Out came in on the 18th of December, dropped out on the 28th of December as well, climbed as high as number 232 uh, before dropping out sharply. It is a movie that seems to have snuck on the list while no one was looking, People realized it was on the list, and that was very promptly corrected, which is an interesting discussion that is probably worth having later on. But uh, guys, had everybody here seen Knives Out before today? Yeah. Yes, okay. I had. This was this is unusually the second time that I <laughs> that I that I had seen a movie for the purposes of this podcast. I thought it was a good film to watch for a second time. Like I it was Absolutely. like, oh, I noticed that now this time. There was yeah, a lot of little is, things like that. This is the third time I think that I watched this, and it's what I really like about it is it's that kind of film that does reward kind of multiple viewings and it's a very kind of i mean we don't watch movies this way anymore but it's a very kind of easy breezy sunday afternoon kind of a thing yeah. to, to throw on i mean again i've seen this three times as well first time i saw it i actually took my dad to see it um and it was very a very dad friendly movie he went through a phase afterwards of wanting to watch murder mysteries before discovering there weren't actually that many murder mysteries and many of them were actually quite dull but aside from that it was very very enthusiastic response it's a lovely film i paid to see this in the cinema which is yeah. In fact, I think I had recommended people watch this in uh, a previous episode. Pro- yeah. In a yeah. previous episode, you sort of singled it out as something worth watching. It's funny because um, similarly, like I, I think I saw the trailer and we'll, we'll probably get into like Rian Johnson stuff generally. Um, but I just wasn't that like excited for this. I was like, mm, I don't know if that's my thing. It, it didn't look terrible or anything. It just kind of looked a little colorful and knowing and a little winky. And I just didn't really, wasn't really like that sold on it and it was only when three or four people were sort of like no 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 no, you have to go see this this is incredible it's great fun that i went and had a great time because there were were a lot of people very excited for the trailer i think yeah i was kind of the opposite i just some of the jokes in you know and it's because trailers and marketing the sort of ksk you know kfc or csi kfc he says and things like that i was just a little like i don't know if i I remember that trailer being kind of a bit flatly kind of put together yeah it doesn't really show the film at its best which i suppose because it's like a, a murder, murder mystery. mystery they have to be very kind of guarded about what they show and what mm. they don't show and isn't that great in a way where Being you go to surprised. see a movie and the best parts haven't been put into well, the yeah trailer. i mean yeah. so so many movies with great trailers you go and see them and they 
they're total garbage. <laughs> or, or if it's a funny movie, every joke you've already yeah. seen. Yeah. Or the funny or ones. Or the best ones. Yeah. And, yeah. and this in this one, they seem to have put the worst ones in. Yeah, well, I mean, it is worth noting that even blockbusters now tend to have scenes specifically put together for the trailer. Uh, Marvel movies are apparently very, very good. But what's interesting about Knives Out, and it's kind of funny that you guys should mention this, is that Knives Out has become a massive box office success on a budget of less than $40 million. Um, it was famously written over the course of about seven weeks by Rian Johnson during the end of the press tour for The Last Jedi. He'd been kind of kicking around the idea of doing a whodunit for about 10 years, dating back to, I think, Brick, and basically sat down at the end of The Last Jedi press tour, knocked it out, got in touch with Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig said, I'd love to do it, but I'm filming a Bond movie in about a month. So Johnson was like, hey, I can throw together an entire cast and film this entire movie in under a month. Somehow managed to do it, managed to get it released. And it's garnered phenomenal, first of all, garnered phenomenal reviews. Uh, really, really great reviews. Uh, featured on many critics. <laughs> was Daniel, was, was, was he like, do I, have to, do I have to learn a new accent or will I just use one from a previous movie? <laughs> yeah, can I just, have you seen Logan Lucky? If it no? saves time. Yeah. Great. Um, it'll all be a surprise to you. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, uh, but it's, it's garnered great reviews. Garnered great word of mouth. Uh, an A cinema score coming out of it, which is phenomenal, which suggests the audience that saw it love it. Um, according to box office tracking, as Alex mentioned, the biggest selling point for the film is not its trailers or its advertising or even its social media reach, but word of mouth. Um, it has been in cinemas, in many cinemas, actually longer than The Rise of Skywalker, which is quite impressive as well. It outperformed uh, The Rise of Skywalker in China, uh, which is quite a coup as well. Um, and it's it's just basically done remarkably well for itself. There's... Like, I, I believe there were 11 people saw it in China, which is considerably more than... <laughs> than, the, than saw The Rise than of Skywalker. you said The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> yeah. But again, like, and this is the thing, is that it's... A movie by Lionsgate uh, in an era, we talked a bit before about like how so much of modern cinema is based on established intellectual properties, established brands, uh, and name recognition, the idea of movie stars being dead and stuff like that. What's interesting about Knives Out is that Knives Out has arguably performed well enough that Lionsgate are looking at a sequel. Uh, Daniel Craig has announced, and this is great because it's Daniel Craig. He did not announce that he would rather slit his wrist than make another Knives Out film. <laughs> he actually said he would be delighted to come back and work with Rian Johnson again. Johnson said he would love to do every couple of years a quick, low-budget Benoit Blanc novel, a Benoit Blanc sort of film with Daniel Craig together. And apparently Lionsgate, um, who are the studio responsible for films like, say, John, John Wick or The Hitman's Bodyguard, have actually managed to create a surprising amount of relatively modest budgeted kind of films that you don't really see that often anymore that have performed well enough at the box office to kind of become franchises of themselves which is kind of heartwarming in this era where we're talking about like the marvel cinematic universe being on film number 25 it is but it's also a little annoying that everything becomes a franchise you know <laughs> everything has <laughs> yeah, to have, like... exactly we're, we we were missing we were missing kind of like non franchise yeah. like kind of um, uh, uh, properties. Daniel Craig so sees one of his franchises ending, and it's like I've got another one. Yeah, I've got to get another and one. And it's like what a great movie, and it's not a franchise. Let's make it a franchise. <laughs> that's, that's very fair. <laughs> but the, yeah, the, what is like, this uh, CSI KFC? Yeah. What like well, there is no kind of real. Um, uh, problem in itself of making these kind of um marvel or big star wars movies are all are like kind of a lot of the attention because like there there will still be other movies and people would the 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 upsetting thing is that it was taking rian johnson away from making movies like this because like i didn't hate 
the last jedi i didn't care about the last jedi really but um um uh, yeah to, to 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 see him come back and make something like this yeah no that, that's a very fair point i mean not and you don't even have to look at stuff like say the franchise films of like the, the star sure he Wars was quite happy to do star Wars. Cinematic. i imagine the paycheck was quite comfortable yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently he's got a whole trilogy coming um but so see, they I, say. That, that's the thing is an you... envelope full of money <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Apparently, and a press clipping <laughs> it, it is kind of annoying when like a non-franchise film kind of breaks out and then kind of a studio realized they've stumbled ass backwards into a yeah. new franchise of their own but like it's also hangover. when when a director has like a big hit in in kind of modern times we immediately start going but, but what superhero movie could they do or what you yeah. know what franchise yeah, can we yeah. slot them into and i'm sure it's great for johnson that he's got a good relationship with disney and with with lucas arts and all that but the idea that he would be fenced off for a big portion of his career doing another three star wars movies it's not it's not necessarily (laughs) ideal it's not necessarily what you want out of like talented creative voices it also it's it's strange to me that you can make a film like this and see it be so profoundly successful and not think like wow look at that someone had a well thought out idea for a story got together an eclectic cast and just made it and look at all that and think let's not replicate that formula in terms of like giving people chances to tell stories or something. Let's just do that again, again. and again <laughs> and again. Like we were talking about Ghostbusters before this kicked off, and like I, I saw the tra- trailer to it, like another one, like which looks like Stranger Things the other day, and I was like, again, can we be saying, did you guys not see Ghostbusters? That was like a studio saying to crazy Dan Aykroyd, yeah, okay, here's fifty million dollars, so make your ghost blowjob movie, whatever you want to do, and that's yeah, I kind of think. With like Rian Johnson and then this particular film, it's it's great that he can go and make a huge studio film and then he can make this one um, after that. But yeah, that whole sort of like one for me, one for them doesn't kind of work anymore. Work anymore, yeah. Well, that's it because I mean, even outside of the franchise stuff, even if you look at directors working on that level, so like Christopher Nolan, for example, who's like you know, last franchise was the Bond movie and makes Christopher Nolan movies now where he's the brand. Well, he's he's, he's that, the franchise. That's it's like, exactly. Oh, yeah. Is this the sequel to Inception? No, you idiots. This is just the next Christopher <laughs> Nolan film. They're all there'll be a dead wife. There'll be time travel. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, e- even then, like you have people who are wondering, you know, when's he going to go back? can do something like memento something smaller something low-key or even something more like insomnia which is mid-budget and the answer is from his perspective he can't afford to because if he gives up the opportunity to make the movies that he's making right now he effectively marginalizes himself and loses the capacity to keep making any sort of movies in the system as, as it works at the moment so it is incredibly disheartening sort of in that sense yeah um but yeah, so th- that's that's the bummer behind Knives Out. But uh, what did we all make of Knives Out just very briefly? Did we enjoy it? Would we recommend it? Uh, what do we think of it? And d- does it hold up to rewatching? Yeah, I'm, 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 I rewatched it today and thought it really did hold up to rewatching. As I said, I was going into this a little sort of like not sure if I was going to like this. It looked like an Agatha Christie sort of story, which I'll be honest, I don't really like that much. And more to the point, it involves Daniel Craig involved, you know, investigating. Christopher Plummer's weird family. We'd already seen that in a really good film called The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo that David Fincher directed like seven years ago, which we never got a sequel for. So it was a little like looking at this thinking like, why are we making this when we could be making a proper sequel to that with David Fincher? But anyway, decided to go David Fincher's Knives Out would be a very (laughs) different film, I imagine. Um, No, yeah. And I would love to see that. Less on time and more Enya. Yeah. Um, But I I really like this. As I said, I went in totally skeptical. And once it got to the point where I realized like, 
this isn't just going to be a sort of, you know, paint by numbers or murder by numbers or like that, you know, the normal investigation and the reveals and all that. Once it kind of started twisting the genre, I actually started to get worried that like they were going to screw it up because I was liking it so much. I was like, please just like stick the ending, keep this going. <laughs> kind of like, you know, this. Not, I know we're not in the spoiler zone, but as characters you are kind of supporting and you want to like make sure that they have a kind of happy ending versus characters you want to see get a comeuppance. I felt like that for the movie. I was like, I really hope that this movie keeps this pace and keeps this going right all the way to the end. So yeah, I really, really liked it. I thought it was good. Um, all right then. So before like, this is, we talked on the what podcast. About yourself? Yeah. <laughs> well, like I, uh, I have always been a really big fan of Johnson. Like Brick, I think is one of my. It'd be up there with some, one of my personal favorites. Um, and what I have always really appreciated or found really exciting when he has kind of new stuff coming out, um, is that he's. I mean, he's. I think I identify with him because he's a sweet bees about movies. And he's got, like, his approach to storytelling is like, oh, I want to do a crime movie or I want to do a murder mystery or a science fiction thing. But he kind of starts always with these movies in kind of pastiche and kind of an oversized kind of version of what these stories usually are and the tropes they usually use. And then there is usually a, not twist, but kind of a breakdown of that conventional way of telling those stories. What Reddit would describe as a subversion of expectations what, and scare quotes. What, what Reddit would describe as, well, it's not from Save the Cat, so I'm yeah. scared and confused. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and But then, having done that, having having upended the usual conventions of how these stories are told, rather than going completely the opposite direction, he actually takes those kind of broken pieces of these, of these stories and kind of sifts through them and actually finds new ways of telling old stuff. That, that's always what I've really appreciated about, you know, Brick and Looper and, 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 you know, The Last Jedi even. And definitely this, like it, it is kind of a send off or a send up of kind of Columbo and Agatha Christie and all that kind of thing. And then it's not. And then it kind of is again, which is really cool. But throughout it, it's consistent. And again, this is the thing about Johnson's filmmaking. And this is something that I think, as you pointed out, scared and confused. Johnson's filmmaking can perhaps make some people scared and confused. And that's particularly obvious when he was given the keys to a gigantic franchise that had very invested fans. That, that's probably but, more dismissive than, than I mean. Because no. like, not everyone is going to be on board with his kind of approach. approach. Yeah, like that, and, that, that's, and, that's fine. But I think well, what's interesting about Johnson is that while he does it's it's the breaking things apart and putting them back together but assuming johnson's films assume typically that the audience has seen films like this before that they understand the mechanics of it what i actually find really refreshing about johnson as a filmmaker and it's very similar to an article that paul schrader wrote for the guardian a couple of years ago where schrader made the argument that our parents have probably consumed you know, by the age of 30, assume they've consumed 2,500 hours of stories. That's through media. That's through listening to the, the radio plays, through listening, watching television, and through watching films. Our generation has watched somewhere in the region of 25,000 hours. And not only have we watched 25,000 hours of stories, we've watched them kind of deconstructed and, and taken apart. Like, you know, our generations, and this is odd to say that this we're... include porn. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Narrative Well, I mean, because again, like the idea is that like we're a generation that's not raised necessarily on films so much as like the discussion of criticism film. And I mean, like 
talk about things like YouTube videos or Let's Play videos for video games, uh, YouTube criticism, even like stuff like porn. If you want to pick that talk, yeah, <laughs> as you mentioned, that's a good setup and payoff there. Um, but yeah, like the idea that we as as an audience have consumed so much media, and I particularly have consumed so much of what is in inverted commas classic media and archetypal media and kind of formulaic media. You know, we don't just watch gangster films; we've watched The Godfather, and we, you know, we don't just watch kind of like throwaway westerns. We watch the Sergio Leone films, which are kind of picking at those. And we've consumed so much of that. And not only have we consumed so much of that, we consume so much discussion of that. So and much. <laughs> far too much. Far, far, far too much. Uh, and particularly in an era especially of like... like... <laughs> are you looking at me when you yeah. say it? Um, but like particularly in, in an era with stuff like, say, TikTok, which emphasizes the idea of short storytelling. I mean, Luke has talked a great deal. We've talked a great deal about Quibi, uh, for example, which is oh, yeah. Jeffrey Katzenberg's kind of plan for a short form digital on your phone storytelling, the emergence of vertical video, which is designed for uh, storytelling on a phone screen. But the idea of like breaking things down into blips, even things like say uh, Reddit, where you have those kind of creepy pasta stories, which are based around telling short stories effectively and efficiently. Tweet jokes, which tell entire stories in 280 characters. But the idea is that as an audience, we've grown more used to compressing information. I thought you said that the the studios are looking of, of, of ways to, 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 to show things sideways that is the vertical video vertical or was it video. the movie sideways <laughs> Paul Giamatti <laughs> uh, it's very big on TikTok um, it's very difficult to get it's very difficult to get uh, Thomas Hayden Church and Paul Giamatti in the same frame unless you do vertical video um, but no, more, more to the point though like we as a generation uh, an audience of consumers we're not just consuming stories we're consuming the way stories are told and picking up stories and johnson's films always feel to me like they're built on that template yeah. they're built on the starting assumption that the audience even if they've never seen an agatha christie uh, adaptation mm-hmm. even if they never read an agatha christie novel they have read enough media parodying they yeah. watched enough media parodying it or riffing on it or referencing it that they understand the template and therefore Johnson can kind of play with it. It's very similar to what we did with um, Into the Spider-Verse last year, where Into the Spider-Verse was like, you know how superhero movies yeah. work, so we're going to give you six superhero origins. It's funny you say that, actually, because um, I, I, well, I saw Brick when, I was, when it came out. I was a teenager and thought it was like the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. And it was only in like the subsequent few years where I watched a lot of the sort of um, more conventional detective stories and, and stuff from the 1930s with Bogart and Bacall and... And, and started realizing, like, oh, this is kind of a riff on that. By the time I went back to Brick, I didn't actually like it as much the first time. And I kind of, like, you know, leaned away from it a little bit. And then a few years later with Looper, uh, which, again, I really liked, I just really liked the scene in the middle where they start sort of discussing the mechanics of time travel. And Bruce Willis is like, let's not get into that. We, we'll spend all day going through this. Let's just move Diagrams on. Diagrams with straws. Every, yeah, everyone gets it. We all know how time travel works. Let's just go. And it's that's your point that, like, you, you, it's kind of based on this, this sort of literacy of cinema that he sort of assumes a lot of us have. And that, that is something he plays really, really well with. And I mean, even in Star Wars, and I think Luke, Luke makes a point there that like one of the reasons why it provoked the response that it did is because it assumed that people didn't just like consuming Star Wars, but liked thinking about yeah. Star Wars. And, and perhaps that made some people uncomfortable in some ways. Yeah. Uh, kind of, and, and, and never challenge. Like, that's the thing is that Johnson doesn't pick these things apart in order to kind of ridicule them or mock them or laugh at them. He picks them apart, as Luke pointed out, to kind of to put them back together in a way that emphasizes what to him is important about them, I think. Sorry. Yeah, and to be fair, it, as, as, as I say, it's not just maybe that people don't like that because it is kind of 
picking these things apart or, or whatever. I think maybe so some sometimes it can be a bit too cute, you yeah. know. Like uh, in Brick, the the fact that the the school principal is played by Shaft, <laughs> like I love that, but I could see. It taking you out of the film. The, 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 the fact that that relies on you knowing that that's Richard Roundtree and that Richard Roundtree played a detective in a movie, <laughs> and you know that's maybe too much work to expect people to Who do. But if you're also a movie that? nerd like me, it's like, oh my god. Uh, but but and, and and like being even more honestly, like even if you do get that, and this is something that comes up in terms of like criticism of storytelling like this. So like Stephen Moffat does it on television a lot, where he will assume you know what a Sherlock Holmes story is like, so he can play with the kind of conventions and pacing of that well, does, Where it's, does, it's in- does it need, does it require that though like, like say something like um the big lebowski you can probably watch that and not be familiar with raymond chandler mm-hmm. um uh, novels or with kind of adaptations of uh, uh raymond chandler stories and still kind of get that what e- it's e- doing yeah yeah well, i think there's work that you can do to make it to make you know the that kind of pastiche stuff go down a little easier. Like the Big Lebowski has very entertaining characters and yeah. very kind of funny bits and stuff like that. Whereas if you were to compare, like that's that's a noir thing, like yeah. Brick is. But Brick is, even though it's kind of a, I, I think it's very celebratory of those kind of stories, it's very serious in tone. And there's not necessarily characters that, that, that many audiences could latch onto quite so easy. Like quirky characters, uh, you know, you know, like nihilistic Nazis and all that. It's a bit more fun than like a, a weird guy who can't walk properly that's like sad and lonely and loves Lord of the Rings and lives in his basement. Kind of, you know, it's more the alienating. Who and, talks like a character from a forties film? Yeah. Like. Whereas actually, what's interesting is you can actually see Johnson picking more and more of that kind of detail up as he goes on. Like this, I think works on that level of kind of sending up mysteries and, and all that but it's also like it's just fun characters and it's got good jokes and stuff like that so it, it works a lot better so funny, yeah. yeah and so much fun and right. that 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 helps it kind of bring that other stuff in under the radar a lot better because mm. yeah. you're you're more engaged with you know the characters and and, and it's funny because like another one of his films that i didn't like uh was brothers bloom which i kind of went to after brick and thinking like oh yeah this will be great and just found in that instance, it was just a little too, what you were saying, a little too winky, a little too knowing about like, and now we're doing a sort of confidence film, but the real con is maybe this. Oh, no, wait. It's kind of like what Daniel Craig was saying about like this donut hole has in fact a hole inside of it and this and that. And it can get kind of abstract. And at a certain point, you're like, oh, I see you're sending up this, you know, French cinema trope, but that's not that fun, man. Like <laughs> some of us just want the story that kind of like flows and works and you can laugh at so yeah, it's kind of a balance, and I think in *Knives Out* he really nailed that balance. Whereas in some of the other ones, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not as as sold. Well, this is probably worth noting again. Um, his most successful film is his first film to make the two hundred and fifty, uh, which is quite impressive. Uh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, of course, um, *Last Jedi*. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> last, I forget. La- the *Last Jedi* is notable as being the first Star Wars film not to make the two hundred and fifty. Okay. All of the prequels made the two hundred and fifty. Wow. Solo didn't. No, yeah, but Solo came I, out after the Last Jedi. I can, oh. I can imagine. It like, just feels longer. <laughs> IMDb voters like watching Looper and just having their like finger over the upvote button or whatever, being like, "This is Bruce Willis action movie. It's so cool." And uh, there's time uh, travel. And Wait, then the movie goes, is "No, he it's killing a, a child." <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's 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 actually this like 
weird drama you know on a farm and they're like no no not gonna vote for it after all there's the joaquin phoenix up in gladiator with the thumb yeah. shaking yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah so this is a, we've talked in the podcast before about like the spore zone and sometimes the spore zone's important and sometimes it's not i suspect that the spore zone's kind of important to talk about knives out so before we jump in we're going to ask three questions to get us started um which are do you think that knives out belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made so alex um no now i like it a lot and everything i just i i and i I know i say that a lot when i come on this podcast like no this this film is good but it's not on the 250 um no it's kind of like what luke was saying this is a great film for a sunday afternoon it's fun it's fast it's well constructed it's well performed but it's it's fundamentally slight and that's kind of part of its charm i think that it's not supposed to be deconstructed endlessly and 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 not even you know you sort of just enjoy it and i think that's what i found watching it the first time i stopped trying to guess who did it and just like went with it which normally i'm always thinking like but what about this what about this and i started doing that again watching it this morning i was thinking but maybe someone you know who might do it this way or that and and thinking actually no the, the film doesn't really sort of encourage shouldn't encourage that kind of analysis it's it's a, a, a sort of well constructed enjoyable film but I don't think it's one of the top 250 films of all time. It's it's still very good. I'd still recommend it and all these things. But no, it wouldn't be on my... Is it Johnson who's described as a roller coaster, not a puzzle box, which is probably a very yeah, accurate description of what it is. that's exactly what it is, actually. It feels much more like, even to the point where we were laughing about <laughs> clues literally being like handed to a character. Like, <laughs> now we're doing this, now we're doing this. Um, and, you know, contrasting it with like an Agatha Christie story, I think one of the interesting things is right from the start, you do, you're presented with characters who you dislike, um, and who are kind of like evil and plotting right from the very start. And we'll get into some of the other spoilery stuff later. But Agatha Christie, it's often like someone arrives and it's like, but these fabulous, wealthy, well-regarded old people couldn't kill someone. And that's kind of like, and then gradually by the end, it's like, wait, they can. And that's the whole reveal. Whereas, yeah, with this film, it sort of holds your hand a lot. Like, and it does feel like you're strapped into a roller coaster. But that's a good thing because he knows that's it's exactly the point. And I don't think you can really criticize it for that. It's just again coming back to the 250 no this is a well-made fun film it doesn't have to be like etched into the stars forever though as like an example of the genre cool and luke uh, i would agree i think that there is a good amount of kind of critical analysis or kind of a more serious way that you could look at the film and it's got themes that you know i think that it does very well that other people might not find that does so well but from the every, like every time i watch it it it's yeah it's that kind of it's a fun time. It, I wouldn't call it, I don't think it's trying to be like a very important movie. It's it's Johnson coming off of a very wearying, like big and successful, whatever, you know, it was financially successful production. And financially, critically, he, commercially with audiences as well. Yeah, and, yeah. but so he, home media. he has the clout to be like, oh, well, I'm just going to toss the movie off. And movies like that, they can be a lot of fun. They can be the kind of movie you always want to kind of keep handy in your DVD collection. But not necessarily going to be your favorite movie of all time it is like you know you were mentioning logan lucky earlier it is kind of one of those movies where if you look at steven soderbergh and his kind of long career and he's got a lot of credits you can see there are films that he's like putting a lot of stock in and 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 really putting a lot of work into and then sometimes he'll be like i did this in three months Mm. (laughs) on a phone phone. (laughs) and they can be yeah and like it's kind of a thing he wanted to try or do yeah Yeah. and like haywire is one of his his better films and then films that he puts a lot of work into can be a lot worse uh but 
not like, referencing any particular film, uh, <laughs> such as I don't know the long. Well, we, we won't yeah. we won't get sidetracked. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I really like it, but I wouldn't put it on my two fifty or the two fifty or anything like that. Yeah. All right, and and then we've got to jump ahead to the second question. But Andrew, what about yourself? Um, do I think it should be on the two fifty? No, I'm I'm happy enough that it kind of got in for us to 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 talk about it because I I um I'd I'd be interested to see from for to hear from Luke what the kind of um what some of the important themes are because i i think um maybe i had more of a reaction of, of of um close closer to what alex had in the sense that it was kind of a series of um enjoyable bits kind of that um um peppered throughout and being kind of uh, pushed through it rather rather than feeling like um like there was anything um that I was kind of stopping to think about um, uh, throughout it, so they, they, uh, it was tremendously enjoyable, and I'm glad that it kind of made that it made the list. Nobody can take that away, from <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no, it 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 perhaps doesn't deserve to be on the uh, the the two fifty. It wouldn't I mean, be a problem if it was, but no. I mean, it, personally, I, I think it should be on the two fifty, <clears throat> but I I was outvoted. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, I actually I don't think it should be on the two fifty. To be clear, I um I do really like it. It was my fourth favorite film of last year. Um, oh, I give it perhaps a bit more stock, I think, than Alex and Andrew in terms of what it's doing and, and how it's doing it. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about, a lot to unpack. I think it arguably does a much better job of this is America in 2019 than a lot of the movies that we got that were this is America in 2019 sort of films, I think. Um, and I think that it does that while doing it within the framework of a murder mystery as well. And I think that it, it we mentioned and Luke sort of alluded... It's another Lakeith Stanfield. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Like, <laughs> um, this is Jem. America movie. <laughs> yeah, along with Uncle Gems and uh, Get Out um, and Atlanta. Oh, I was thinking of... Wow, there um, really is a Lakeith Stanfield, um, This Is America genre. I'm sorry to bother you. Yeah. That was, yes, that's what I assumed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay, Lakeith Stanfield, one to watch, apparently. Good, if you want a Zeitgeist movie, just yeah. drop Lakeith Stanfield in, in there. Yeah. Um, but yes, so no, but I, I do honestly think that it is a movie that... And I think that more to Luke's point about Johnson taking things apart and playing with expectations <clears> in order to emphasize it, I think Johnson understands that this aspect of commentary has always been a part of the genre that he's playing with. I don't think it's a radical film. I don't think it's a subversive and inverted commas film. I think it's doing what a lot of the great murder mysteries do, including Christie's ones. And we mentioned Columbo earlier on, and we'll kind of circle back to that probably as well. But in terms of using the genre to, to deal with ideas in a kind of a, perhaps a, I don't know if you describe it as more subtle way, but in, in a way that is perhaps less overtly direct than perhaps subtle, some. Maybe yeah. subtle enough that you have to reach for it. <laughs> is that what you're getting at? I'm getting. Well, I mean, there is a, a central conversation in the film that and all but mentions. It, it is like a dog runs up with like the politics of this film in yeah, its mouth this... and it's like, here, this is what this means. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and Darren's standing there going, this is most peculiar. Um, but yes, and then second question around the table, which is, would it make your own personal 250 i suspect we already know the answer to this but no Alex. yeah again like i think more to qualify there the current 250 list as i've discussed before there are definitely films on there currently that i would like to see replaced with this if that like helps but no it wouldn't be on my my top 250 list i i think it's it's brilliant it's a lot of fun i'd recommend seeing it it's just kind of like i, I don't know if this should be a franchise you know what I, mean? <laughs> I think this is good it's it's not necessarily one of the 250 greatest films ever made. Yeah. 
and Luke. Yeah, I, I you can just take the clip of me on previous episodes saying 250 movies is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I don't know. I don't think so. That's a lot of movies, man. Yeah. And I've seen far too many. All right. And it's I, good, though. We, we, I really we, like it. We could take maybe 500 from, <laughs> from any episode and just put them in yeah. this yeah. section. <laughs> 250 is a lot. I don't know if I've prepared yeah. my full yeah, list. Do yeah. I have a, does everybody have I their list? I should probably do that. Yeah, yeah. Prepare take, the list. You could take every time where I've only seen the movie once and I've only just seen it as well. Where where I'm saying, well, I've just seen it. So it's difficult <laughs> to have to, a kind to, of distance from to, it. To be fair, as I said, I'm a big Johnson fan. And even though this wouldn't necessarily be... <laughs> No, I think he's creepy and weird. <laughs> That's I've got a whole I've got a whole other podcast about Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I think he's a terrifying human being. I actually don't think he's a human Smells being. Smells a baby. <laughs> he's he's a monster from and another soft dimension. Soft to the touch. Um, um, but yeah, I, I don't know that if this would be my personal like favorite snake. film of of Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson? I Ryan? swear oh, I've looked Ryan this Johnson. up. And every other time I look it up, it's, it's Ryan or Ryan. It's because Ryan. it's Irish anyway. Um, that's yeah. why he spells it the way that he does. Yeah, yeah. But because we don't have a Y in I, our alphabet. I think it's his... I think it's it's his film that will kind of... Uh, to date, that will kind of kind of live on most popularly in kind of in pop- consciousness, yeah. you know? Yeah. I might uh, give Looper a rewatch again soon because I, I really like Looper and I really liked this. But in, if I had to pick one Ryan Johnson film... For the 250 it would probably be one of these it's just as i said don't know if they're like they're both very very good they're both great genre twists and everything what about you luke if you had to pick like one of his films for the 250 uh the last Jedi. oh <laughs> <laughs> looper always makes me look out for young versions of me yeah. <laughs> coming, coming to, to close the loop <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, remember, I remember being in the cinema when they sort of did the montage of like Here's middle-aged Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and here's now young Bruce Willis, and people just laughed. You know, <laughs> it was like that was ridiculous. But then you just kind of go with it, and I felt like a lot of Ryan Johnson stuff is kind of like this is happening, get on board or don't. And this film kind of felt that way as well, like his ridiculous accent or this family who are like cartoons sometimes. You just go with it; it's grand. Yeah, yeah. Accept it or or don't. Exactly. That's like, or leave yeah. the cinema. Yeah, your choice. Yeah. Um, like like is. is... The, the, is Lakeith Stanfield uh, uh, playing a detective in this? <laughs> or, I remember or, seeing on Instagram uh, Lakeith Stanfield, like somebody's like, oh, your character got his own poster. And he's like, oh, that's cool. I haven't seen the film yet. And it's just like four months after it came out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not that bothered apparently about seeing Knives Out. Um, all right. And then final question. Um, so, Alex. If people have not watched Knives Out yet, if they haven't had a chance to see it, should they pause the podcast, run out, watch it? Yeah, I, I think so. Like this was, um, I, I, I watch a lot of films and I, I work in an office and when I come in, you know, I try and sort of like not say, for instance, I've seen this like really weird sort of Chinese art house film, The Last Hours in 3D, I'd really recommend it. Because people <laughs> just look at you like, what's wrong with you? You know, this is this Monday morning. But this was a solid like, hey, everyone, I saw a good film everyone should go see. And I recommended this to people. Um, so yeah, I would recommend this to people. It's it's a solid one. It's a good one to you watch were with part your parents. Of his marketing strategy. Yes, <laughs> the word of mouth. If people like next Christmas are looking for that perfect film that like both your parents might be interested in and doesn't have a lot of awkward sex scenes, this is that film. It's it's like a perfect. Just Sunday has one awkward with. sex scene. Does it? No, oh. <laughs> I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, and Luke. Uh, yeah, it, I would recommend anybody that hasn't seen this to to go out and watch it. Um, because I think it's a pretty safe bet. I think it's 
broadly entertaining and kind of fun and I think people tend to like murder mysteries. They're not as common in film as as, as you would think. But um, that's because there's so many of them on TV. But, and I and I think as well, like murder mysteries as a genre kind of has, because it's based on such like broad characters and kind of simple ideas and stuff, it has maybe fallen out of, you know, popularity as something to do like movies or, or kind of, well now events in that way like it's i think every kind of sitcom has the the send-up of a murder mystery episode and like you can go out of a you know evening and have a murder mystery night because it's like local actors can do that kind of thing but yeah i think you can't go wrong with this but then i thought that about the last jedi as well so what do i know Came out thinking that's a slam dunk and everyone's gonna love it, and I'm finally gonna be on the same page with <laughs> yeah. with with popular opinion. My my favorite reaction coming out of the Last Jedi, and and it's one of the ones that is my, one of my opinions that probably aged least well, which is I liked it a lot, but it's it's a little bit too heavy on the fan service. It's far too dedicated <laughs> to making fans feel comforted and loved and like they're important. And I was like, yeah, if it didn't do that, it would be a great movie. <laughs> And boy, did that opinion age quickly. So what did you think of the fan service in the last one then? Because like, surely that was like oh, <laughs> yeah. a whole different level. Yeah. We don't, oh, don't worry. We have a separate section of this <laughs> podcast dedicated to discussing Knives Out in the context of The Rise of Skywalker. Oh, um, and then, so Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend people watch it? Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I entirely would. Kind of um, without... Um, without reservation, I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with Luke. It's, it's a, it's a safe bet. It's a, it's a fantastic evening. If you've seen it already, see it again. Um, I, 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 I would watch it now. Yeah, no, I, that's it. I, I watched it twice in the space of two days. Um, which was great. It was one of the first things I did. When you I say that as if it's an unusual thing for you to do. Dad. Fair point. I, um, not, not, to, not to date this recording, but by the time, by the end of today, I will have watched 1917 twice within 24 hours. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, it's like, in real time yeah um and then yes i, I would like d- i didn't like this i've only seen it three or four times i, 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 <laughs> I need to let it settle yeah, yeah i got yeah. dragged to 1917 in 40x which was oh. seemed disrespectful to <laughs> the people who actually died in the war um yeah so that was quite the experience like, <laughs> did, this, did they did they give your hand a septus infection it was kind of once it started i was like this is horrifying because like, <laughs> it's the, a chair shake yeah, the chair shakes, but they also do like spray smells water and on spray you stuff and on you. It was really, really just, just, just like so the blood of, yeah. of naive 17-year-old so, boys. It was so fundamentally disrespectful. Yeah. Like, the only film I've seen in there is The Predator, and my abiding memory of it is like there's a sequence where, obviously it's a Predator movie, somebody gets gutted and hung, and there's a sequence where characters are wandering, and I remember water just dripping yeah. on my face during yeah. it and being like, That's this be is such re- a depressing job if you work for Cineworld, <laughs> and you, you have to go through movies and be like, this is the water dripping <laughs> Yeah. Well, I wonder. I wonder if the the water that was dripped on my face was probably less sterile than like the blood used in the scene. Yeah. Anyway, can you? Do they have um, like fart smells? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Fine smells. Yeah. Like, they had like burning smells, Seabrook and you're watching smoke. like a village burn, and you're like, mm, this seems wrong. This, this movie in 40x would be quite fun. Yeah. You know, you could, you could very slightly the rattle the chairs yeah. during that car chase. You could Just get, you could get people rat- to eat sweet beans. Like it wasn't that a um, Nathan for you episode? Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Andrew, people are not going to eat one iota. (laughs) A frozen Um, yogurt that that tastes sweet beans. 
that, that's another reason why I think the trailer for this movie fell kind of flat. Is because so many of the best jokes involve words you can't put in a trailer. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how you're going to handle this episode. Or even, oh, yeah, yeah like, with you, the you swear want, filter. Yeah, you want to know you want to know what the best part of the swear filter is, and this is great because I'm going to have to censor both of the things that I say for this. But apparently, when he was writing that scene, it was originally supposed to be sweet beans. You sweet beans. You sweet beans. You sweet. You, you, and then he was like, "No, no, that would get me a hard or rating." So instead, I'm gonna go eat sweet beans. Eat sweet beans. Eat sweet beans. It's somehow worse, I think. Than <laughs> sweet beans. Like yeah. it's much more visceral and and sort of like instructive. It's an image. And then like the line of the film is Michael Shannon immediately screaming, "I will not eat one iota," <laughs> <laughs> as if it was I, literal. I will not sweet beans one iota of myself. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Um, but anyway, so with that in mind, then we'll segue neatly. Into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So Luke. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. Um, Sorry. So Luke, what is Knives Out about for you? Knives Out is about what all the best murder mysteries are about, which is that the rich are bastards. Uh, and the only thing that separates them from the rest of us isn't morality or worth or deserving anything or, or, or their own innate qualities. It's that their money and their privilege uh, shields them from consequences. Why don't we just take it back? <laughs> this is a question that gets asked a lot. I, um, if only we had a mechanism I for that, somebody, but it's very taxing to think of what it might be. Jerry Seinfeld, like, why, why, don't, why don't people just kind of like... Go like like get weapons. He of all people should not be begging that question. No, no, he he was the one being asked the question. Uh, I like to think that like archivists and you know twenty one hundred will be like, and then the the civil war that raged can actually be traced back to this one film podcast where (laughs) someone posited, wait a minute, guys, why don't we just take it from them? It's, so it's, listeners, it's, if you are going to revolt, uh, please listen to the rest of the podcast and subscribe. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's where to treat people who don't own a home. Yeah. <laughs> take, take the home yeah. of the one person. We come to does. the home, the own home. <laughs> but it's it's also about now how... Now which thromby is Darren. <laughs> it's it's also about how regardless of kind of complications and machinations and distracting... Sweet bees. Uh, people generally tell on themselves... And the truth generally reveals itself in the end. Like what I find so kind of fun and kind of entertaining about Benoit Blanc as a kind of murder mystery detective is that he himself would admit that he doesn't actually do that much work in in deducing these things. (laughs) He 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 pretty much admits that he just kind of waits for the truth to to come out. (laughs) Like just just by holding it under scrutiny and just by just by being present. Uh, people will generally up and, and reveal the, you know, the, the, what they what they've done in the end. I think in real life we we've seen that that happens and then people just move on anyway. But when you can be- when you combine those two kind of ideas, I think that's what Knives Out is capital A about. You know, this is just stew in a batch of 
weeks off. Just, just <laughs> sprinkling it all over me. Yes. All over. Yeah. Um, no, no, I do. And that, this is going to get at what I, I think of in terms of the movie being a 2019 movie, because it is worth noting this is a recurring theme in murder mysteries. And again, Johnson's made this point when talking about like adapting Christie, is that like people tend to think of murder mysteries as period pieces, as ornate films. Uh, that's mostly because Christie was writing for the time that she was alive in, and therefore we tend to adapt her works as a canon, and they tend to be set in the 30s or the 40s and that sort of era as well. And like his observation, observation that's made quite well, is that Christie herself, while perhaps not quite as pointed as Johnson is, her film, sorry, her stories are inherently about how deeply, deeply unpleasant rich people are. Money is almost always the motive for the crime. The irony being that her most successful work, The Murder on the Orient Express, so many is... stories are like that. Yeah, like so, so many kind of Disney, um, uh, like simple stories are about like this uh, poor person, like Cinderella, or the, the yeah, but the not, but but not the, the villain, yeah, who who yeah, who are who are actually kind of the real princesses, or... yeah. And it's worth Star Wars. Yeah, it's the pick an example as well to say in the Johnson canon. But I mean, more in terms of kind of Christie's work, it's been pointed out that her father uh, went bankrupt when she was very young, leaving the the family almost destitute and leaving Christie with an anxiety over money and over like status as well. And it's been pointed out that like repeatedly in the novels, Poirot of all people points out that he actually exaggerates his accent and his sort of persona because the English will never take a foreigner seriously. Like, that's one of his abiding traits. Miss Marple uh, repeatedly points out that as an investigator, her method is very simple, very similar to the Benoit Blanc model, which is that she just sits around and listens because nobody assumes that the, nobody sees an old woman, which perhaps is something that Christie herself had experience with as, as a writer in contemporary society. But even if you look at things like Columbo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it exactly. It comes back in Winetta. Um, but I mean, even, even things like, say, Columbo. Um, where it is inevitably a story about how evil and stupid rich people are. Um, mm-hmm. It inevitably boils down to how will this stupid rich person underestimate the guy in the shaggy trench coat? The flat-footed, slovenly dressed, yeah, one eye. Just one more thing. I love yeah. Columbo. I Columbo's love great. Columbo. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, and, and that's very much part of it and very much part of the kind of the fabric of the film. But what I really like about Knives Out is that it... And yes, there is a sequence, Alex alluded to it, where a dog takes the politics of the film <laughs> and runs up to you in case you don't get what it's doing, which is the sequence where they have the conversation that is patently about Donald Trump without actually mentioning the name Donald Trump. And I think there's several interesting things about that, but I think that what the film does rather well is Probably that it's trying to like hide that it's about Donald no, Trump no. either. I don't think anybody <laughs> yeah. would would not get that what they're talking about. Yeah. What, is, what is Richard Drysdale talking about yeah. <clears throat> with his baseball cap? Yeah, but and I, rem- his cages. I remember talking to you about this, Darren, after <laughs> after seeing it for the first time, which is that that whole middle bit of the film where they're talking about kind of Trump and all that. I remember the first time that I was watching it, thinking that it was very kind of blunt and yeah. uh, inelegant. <laughs> But then the more I thought about it, like all that stuff that Don Johnson says uh, at the party in the middle of the film is actually closely tied to the themes and the story of of Knives Out itself uh, in an interesting way. Because what what Don Johnson says, he's talking about like migrants coming into America and being separated from their, their children and stuff. And he says, uh, they're being locked up for breaking the law. Yeah, he says regardless, he, he's basically saying that regardless of the fact that they're in a sympathetic position, the fact is that they've broken the law and they should face consequences for that. And there are legal ways to do it, do it within he, the system. Th- then he hands his plate. To, which is to, an ad lib from Johnson. Johnson yeah, apparently ad lib that yeah. thing. By the way, Don Johnson is incredible. He's oh, fucking yeah. great. Yeah. Like, like watching him 
in um, in Django Unchained. Yeah. And thinking, why hasn't he been in things all the time? Yeah. And, I, and I was thinking at the time, maybe this is just the Quentin Tarantino thing. Yeah, with Where Travolta. he takes an actor like Travolta and puts him in a movie and you're like, oh, Travolta's great. And then you see him in a few more things. And, and you see like, Michael and Phenomenon. So much. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the timing, but for me, it was the exact same thing. But with like, I think it was season two of Eastbound and Down when Kenny, Kenny Powers, who's played by Danny McBride, like rocks up. And you know this character, you know he's horrible, you know where he's coming from. And then he's like, I'm going to go visit my dad. And he like rocks up to the driveway of this like house and out comes Don Johnson. At the time I was like, oh my God, who's this guy? This is brilliant. He was so, so well, funny. And yeah. I mean, even in uh, Watchmen as well, he, he does something very similar in Watchmen. We're in the middle of a Johnson Asons. Um, I came out of... Uh, Donasons. <laughs> I came out Donna-sons. of... I left, I left Knives Out with my dad and my dad had somehow, in the walk between the closing credits of the film when he saw written and directed by Rian Johnson and the point we got to the car, constructed an elaborate mythology where Rian Johnson must logically be the next you of Don Johnson because that's the only way that Johnson Don Johnson was Dwayne able to get a job. Johnson. Yeah. It's connected so much. Johnson verse. Yeah. But yeah, so it's like Fast and Furious 9. It's, it's so uh, it's incredible that uh, that these three people have happen to have such an uncommon surname. <laughs> but but yeah, like uh, he he says all that stuff um, but what we what we actually know or ought to know is that these people are placed in a no-win situation because of the manipulations and and machinations of the people that are way way above them in in society and in economic stability and i kind of thought about that a bit more and what kind of you realize is that marta we think for so much of the film that she's responsible for the death of of harlan thromby thromby i think there's an l that's the, it's based enough. on the novel. I'm very proud of myself for getting even in the ballpark. Well, they we see how he does. Hey, no, but, see the spelling in the credits. But you, 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 you assume that she made the mistake that and you think she made. It's a sympathetic position, yeah. but the fact is you assume that, that she's she, killed she this the guy up. and that she's then trying to cover it up. Yeah. But you realize actually that in the style of, say, Psycho, where the car... We've talked about this when we talked about Psycho, where you have the situation where Bates is watching the car go down and it kind of stops and you're like... Wait, am I sympathizing with the yeah. serial killer here? And, no, uh, yeah, the car, he's going to get caught. Yeah. <laughs> but the reveal is actually she was being manipulated by Chris Evans and actually uh, uh, Christopher Plummer would have been fine if he hadn't have worked up this whole plan mm. uh, for how to... Him with. Yeah, but it was... I mean, by the way... <laughs> that, that's like he's roped her into this yeah. game as, as, as Benoit Blanc kind of kinda calls it. As uh, everybody calls it, as Linda introduces it, and yeah, the 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 two that like the story of it, and then those kind of underlying themes are actually connected in in kind of a quite clever way, and like. Is that a, a defense? Like, well, he did ask me to do it. He roped me into it. But he had already <laughs> slit his throat. But well, you see, the thing, what, what, no, what you realize at the well, end no, no. was that there never actually was any Need crime any on her yeah. part. Yeah. Mm. No, well, he killed himself, and she helped. Well, she, did, she didn't she help. Was, like, I mean, she went into the room to talk to him and he already had the knife. Here's and... what you're going to do. Yeah. And it's like, perfect. You, you have all my instructions. Yeah, um, and, and, yeah, but, the, but that was to cover up her murder of him, which never actually... Oh, manslaughter. I, I think manslaughter. And, but and that also never protect, actually happened. And also not even to protect herself, to protect her mother is the way that it's repeatedly yeah, framed. That was yeah. my point. So like, I, I agree and I think it, it's wonderful in a way because in a way Christopher Plummer is introduced as this sort of like... A genuinely selfless like, human being. And sort of being. like interesting. But then like he also, ha- that's his family and that's his house. So, you know, even though he has this great relationship with Marta, one of the things I thought was really well done is that his house itself 
is full of sort of memorabilia from his stories, is full of like literally dead animals posed and chasing each other. And it's stuffed to the brim with all these like sweet beans. Uh, and then we, Marta's house is not. It's a house of cracked phone screens and uh, spider plants on the window and even the little details they show of her house. The, the, the cracked phone, I thought, was a really perfect great detail. Like, great detail. And, they, and they, they show it just in, they show it like three or four times. I yeah. Just enough to register. But yeah. I always felt like that was from her uh, being tripped on the ground and that that, was, that that would be a reveal. It could have been. No, I, the way I saw it is like if you can't afford a new iPhone, which lots of people can't, you have a cracked phone screen. Yeah. And um, But my point was, I suppose, when she leaves that world of her mum and her sister and watching you know, YouTube in the corner of the apartment where you get a Wi-Fi signal and she goes literally to this haunted Starring, house. Starring uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Detective Hard Rock. <laughs> we have the nanny cam footage. <laughs> but you, you, you crushed his forklift and to, then burnt his fingers off. Just a brief sidebar to say Joseph Gordon-Levitt's career has gone in this bizarre direction where his only credits for like the last like six or seven years are cameos. in yeah. Rian Johnson movies. But, but the stuff he's, he's, the they're stuff parked he's doing. right over there. <laughs> The stuff he's doing are sort of uh, micro, like yeah. the the wreck, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Or he, he, he like when it, when I was on Twitter, I could see that like he was very much into kind of you know encouraging people to do these little little pieces of creativity, mm. so, just like me. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> sorry, you, but you were saying, Alex. Sorry, sorry, yeah. So what I was saying is like when she leaves that environment of the the her sort of own house and she gets drawn into the crazy rich person house, then of course you get presented with a medical mishap and instead of calling an ambulance, you're like, okay, yeah, no, let's let's organize this whole weird chess game where yeah. we all have to arrange these things. That make total sense in that in context, world. in and this world. He literally lives in a clue board. Exactly, yeah. You can either listen on in fascination or roll your eyes and turn off the podcast immediately but the fact is that the Thrombley house is America <laughs> like, <laughs> no I agree, it's all yeah, yeah, I, agree. Yeah. I mean like it's, it's not even Make- particularly subtle about it that's the entire point of the conversation that they have yeah. like and, and it's not even like you mentioned the, the Richard stuff and Richard is fantastic uh, Ricky Lindholm doesn't get much to do as Donna but she gets to give, she gets a kind of a pivotal moment in that conversation where she's talking about, they're coming over here and they're taking our culture and I, I wouldn't care what skin color they are and what what the film is actually about and and this kind of gets to the house being america is about and again this is the role your eyes turn off the podcast moment it's about demographic displacement uh in that it's very no but it's very much like we've talked on the podcast before about like one of the things about say the ascent of right-wing populism and particularly say trumpism and and brexit in the uk we've never spoken about that before we never (laughs) have at all but how like when they do actual studies that look at correlations and statistics and beliefs and what those correspond to it isn't what we would consider traditional conservatism it isn't like you know small government and low taxes it's more around this idea of a demographic state and the idea of a demographic demographic stasis and the idea of a cultural homogeny and the fear of people coming in and changing that balance one of the observations that's been made is that like the rise of birtherism, which itself led to the ascent of Donald Trump, it became like his effective platform to owning Fox News and then owning the Republican Party, was the suggestion in the U.S. Census, I think around 2014, that by 2045, the U.S. would be a, major- a minority-majority country, which would mean that while white people would still be the largest demographic group in the population, they would be less than 50% of the population. And... People, when they surveyed Trump voters, they found that there was a high degree of fear and anxiety over that fact. 
over the idea that the country is going to be changed and replaced. And again, you look at things like Brexit, where immigration is a huge issue. But ironically, it's the places that are least... It's that crypto-Marxist structuralist um, degree <laughs> SJW, that you uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but <laughs> post-feminist. Post-feminist, yeah. yeah. Um, Sorry. But, yeah, no, 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 it, it is. But I mean, I, the movie is very kind of explicit in those terms. And again, like you look at things like the people who are reacting or voting for Brexit are the communities that actually have the least immigrants but are most afraid of immigration. And the irony being that you have a situation with, well, say, Brexit, some, where some, you have... Sometimes that's because they live in communities where, where, where the entire white community community is 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 there and why the population is so large because they've all escaped the kind of um what oh the suburbs the orange orange county yeah. of the city yeah the little yeah. red heart the at the heart flies. of california yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not um, that these people are 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 out there and have never um kind of encountered migration necessarily it's like they 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 might be there because they're either they or their kind of ancestors have or have like nobody their knows. ancestral home andrew yeah exactly which yeah, actually yeah. isn't theirs to begin with. yes no uh, and again the house is america um, uh, see you thought it was a roller coaster but we could find a way to make it a boring <laughs> sociology lesson no i think that's part I, of the roller coaster you're like presented with like you know i think particularly we were talking about the Don Johnson character who's quoting Hamilton in his little interview and then yeah. immediately is followed by like... Immigrants, of, they get the job done. <laughs> and then immediately followed by the scene we're talking about. And similar to you, Luke, the first time I saw it, I was like, yeah, that was a little clunky in the middle. Like, not saying it wasn't good or anything, but looking watching it again, it really does fit into the puzzle when you know the ending and you know what's coming, you know, particularly... It's the donut, the donut hole. hole. <laughs> that is it itself. Is. It is, yeah. I wonder do like theme park enthusiasts like ride roller coasters and then come off and be like, but... How can I find a way? <laughs> the loop de loop is America. No. Um, conversation. But it's it's just really interesting because it's, you know, the, the family are also insistent that Marta is part of the family and kind of someone that they'll look after and all this stuff. But it's all very I want much you on, at the funeral, but I was outvoted. It's on their terms. Yeah. You know, yeah. even the quote unquote nicer characters. Like Meg. They, mm. Yeah, they're is like, we'll. Nice? No, 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 no. no, no. Under quote, the unquote, slightest Meg. bit of scrutiny, it's like, no, yeah. I want to look after you. Yeah. Meg would have voted for Obama, Obama three with. times if she could. <laughs> she's got her tuition paid for for four years. Well, like, they, at this point. Now she's masters? doing a post grad. Yeah, she's doing yeah. a master's in SJW. <laughs> and <laughs> it's. <laughs> It's it's when Martha tries to exert the or, or not even then but but certainly when she tries to exert the slightest bit of agency on her own on her own part they really don't like that. that. Yeah. But that's 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 the thing is that like and again this is the issue I'd say and again not to turn into a boring sociology lecture too late but the, <laughs> we're late. already there. But I mean things like say it doesn't make sense doesn't compel me either. <laughs> but like the, the thing is that like you have these entire economies in places like the UK and in the US that are built around immigrant work. And like you have this discussion with Brexit about what's going to happen to the NHS, where literally we don't have nurses because we need to actually import nurses. Nurses need to come yeah. from abroad in order to fill those jobs. And doctors as well are typically recruited from abroad to fill those jobs. And we can't do that if we have a no immigration policy. But like even in terms of... Sorry, they got a Brexit, but with immigration. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like kind a of little immigration. One of the what of what of well, the big to... reasons that people cited is like, yeah, we should have Brexit because then we won't have so many immigrants. Now we have Brexit and immigrants. Yeah. <laughs> um, Best of both worlds. Everybody's happy. Yeah. But no, but the the point is more along the lines of, and if you look at say things like uh, the Trump vote in the states, where you have 
people who work in industries that are arguably not necessarily sustainable. And and again, you know, and again, these are these are actually tragic stories. I don't mean to be flippant about them. Things like, say, the coal industry, for example, things like logging, things that are not necessarily capable of sustaining themselves into the future in those ways. What's interesting is that you it's look that phrase, at learn to code. Well, yeah, and, that and that's so that's a... that's so cynical. Yeah, it is. It, it's a cynical it's sort of, of it's a cynical, dismissive yeah. approach. But what you notice is that there's this culture, and it's it's interesting. No, I, I'm I'm not putting forward that. No, no, I know. I, I'm saying it became a sort of a didn't it become, it become a kind of a snide of a... response, or mm. like a kind of and a kind of a meme. Pull yourself up by your yeah, by your own bootstraps yeah. and stuff. But then but, it didn't didn't that phrase then become banned on 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 Twitter because it was somehow associated God, with right. some sort oh, okay. of uh, inevitably turns into some kind of course it does crime of like yeah. secret as in, as, as in yeah it's used as like a secret code for, oh. for membership uh, of fascists. some sort of yes yeah, uh, yeah. organization but again like the thing is that you have situations where in the states communities that are dependent on help and immigration stuff like that particularly like the idea that immigration is a net economic boon mm. for communities and it actually helps diversify helps bring in industry and helps generate jobs but you, you have pay, the, yeah. yeah as well like you, they, they contribute more to the yeah. like per per capita yeah so you have the paradox of this because that's not the way they're seen at that's all. that's yeah. exactly but you have the paradox of and it, it happens in this movie with meg and you get that and it's very telling that this is the moment where johnson does the hitchcock homage mm. of the spotlight across yeah. meg's eyes where it, where it's it's the moment where marta says don't worry meg i'll take care of you mm. which theoretically should be the moment meg goes that's great, sorted. We have absolutely no problem. But all of a sudden, that's the point at which Meg has that realization and then tells her family about the situation with Marta's mother because it's not necessarily about her getting her education. It's about having that power that she believes she had taken away from her, even though it was never really hers to begin with. And similarly, Michael Shannon kind of insisting like, oh, well, your mother is undocumented and is living here illegally, but with our financial resources we can that yeah. shouldn't be a problem we can sort all that out as long as you're under our thought yeah yeah like, and as long as you give us the money <laughs> <laughs> the other thing on that point that's like hammered all the way through is the idea of um you know i'm a, I'm a self-made man or I, I made this myself all the way through each character is sort of so 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 tied to this idea that they are independently successful to their there. I mean, Linda, Linda Drysdale starting her real estate yeah. business. Yeah, and after a $1 million loan from her father, which is exactly what it's meant to be. Like, it's and, there I mean, for a reason. And it. Walt runs the publishing house, right? Yeah, and then even and Don Johnson's married to Linda, and then um, Meg is, is you know, initially presented as quite sympathetic, but then as the film goes on, you realize it's just as much a parasite as the rest of them. And yeah. it's, it's kind of fun because you have all these different characters, and this is where... This is one of those elements where you've kind of the pastiche because they're all kind of stock characters and then you realize it's not actually a murder mystery because it's presenting a very clear-cut idea of what happened. But then it does use those characters still in a different way because all these characters, they kind of, they want different things out of, say, the will and out of kind of coming out of the death of, of, of uh, Christopher Plummer. But it really all just comes back to money in the end. Mm, yeah. Like that, whatever they might tell themselves or convince themselves on their, their motivations are quite selfish. There's a great they're, scene when they're reading the will. Yeah, Each one yeah. of them thinks yes, they're the getting reaction it. Shot. Every one of but, them is like but, holding hands. Like but, I'm going to get well, everything. That's, you have the moment where he says, you think it's like a game show and Johnson shoots it like a game show. Where uh, yeah, you have but, but Frank the, all is announcing like, and, and we're going to, the assets include the house and you cut to Jamie Lee yeah, Curtis. The uh, prizes are yeah. different. Yeah. It's Jamie Lee Curtis. Her, 
her particular vision of what the like what success is and what's most meaningful it's real estate is the house yeah. and every everything that, that that represents not just the real estate but Land, the legacy and, and, and space all that. and physical uh, you know to to Michael Shannon and his family the publishing company is the kind of Future. most important yeah. thing and and that's the legacy and all that to him Tony Collette just wants the money she's Flam doesn't pay for itself there are these three different ideas but they're all really just the money yeah <laughs> um, which is true. very cool and like they, they all play those pastiches and those kind of stock characters really really well that was the other point like technically right like the first half an hour it's so brilliant in the introduction of all the characters and you're watching it initially the first time i was watching it thinking okay which one murdered him and you're thinking oh right they all maybe have a reason to do it and they're all really horrible and they're all lying the whole time so like the swap of like oh no 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 this is not that kind of film this is who did it and now the rest of the film is going to be this sort of like inverse of all that i thought that was brilliant and especially right down to the casting because like you see Michael Shannon, you're like, oh, he did it. Creepy Michael Shannon's in this film. <laughs> and then you like see, oh, Jamie Clee Curtis is actually, no. Oh, God, Tony Collette's really good in this and, as well. And Richard, jo- sorry, Don well, Johnson. Well, mentioning Jamie Lee Curtis has no uh, motive, really. Does no, she? no, yeah. that's true. What I, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that like they felt more sympathetic to Jamie Lee Curtis because she's not quite as bad as the rest of them. And like, yeah, she doesn't really have a motive to, yeah. because she wasn't cut off in the same way. Right. But what I kind of, what I like about her character and the kind of arc that she goes through is that, you know, she's very much the, again, capital letters, eldest child. And she kind of sees herself as the most deserving of you know the whole legacy and the whole will and everything because she's a self-made uh, success and like she's done the most she like cares the most for her father and it's more personal for her and everything and even when when the the will is read and stuff like that she's the one who organizes the strategy and yeah. she's the one who's very much she's, in the foreground of all the she's the leader of, yeah, kind of, of the, the family pack, and all yeah. that so so therefore you know, she, even that kind of feeds into her own head or how people might perceive her is that well she's the most deserving though and it's really interesting because then when it's revealed that mars is the one that's been left everything in the will it's her that gets the most angry and it's 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 her that immediately takes it to that place of well you must have been having sex with him yeah because bonking because she's like she's been the perfect daughter she's done everything she must be she must get what she deserves because she's done everything that she could possibly do so if you've got the money you must have done the only thing yeah, that, that I, I could have done. done yeah. um, and I also, one of the small touches I love in that is that Richard, who is like pure reptile brain and is like, has a, has a history of understanding power dynamics when you're in a relationship with somebody who has more money than you, is immediately like, let's not let this get out of control. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> Hang on, guys. <laughs> Take a leaf out of my book. Yeah. we got to be nice to her. Because she calls it boinking. Yeah. Yeah. Out of all the, the, there's a lot of very funny, well-done swearing in this movie. Jacob. Uh, <laughs> Tremblay. Yeah, his, his reaction to it is 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 what the you, most you, pointed you, you dirty anchor baby anchor baby yeah, Wait, uh, yeah. making it explicit the, the, making making the subtext of the movie explicit yes it, yeah it is um that's jacob tremblay yep the kid the, from room yep uh, no what? no sorry no that's not jacob <laughs> that's the kid from it sorry oh, like he grew up Jayden, Jayden, oh yeah it's the, no yeah, his character is jacob yes yes i'm sorry, <laughs> um, sorry. No, jacob tremblay is from the other from dr sleep Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, um, what I was saying on the casting as well, it, it is refreshing to have one of these silly murder mystery films where 
like I mentioned it already, but the girl with the dragon tattoo is great and all, but they very much are like, here's a random Swedish actor, here's a random Swedish, here's Stellan Skarsgård, and here's another random Swedish actor. One of them is the murderer, and you're sort of like, <laughs> which one of them is going to get the meaty scene at the climax? That's, that's really cool in this because, as you say, like in in any kind of murder mystery thing, it always the yeah. the guest star on Columbo. Who's, yeah, you're like. Don Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> you know, William Shatner would yeah. never have done it. By, by coincidence, always turns out to be the one who did it. And then you're here like, well, it's kind of an ensemble cast. And also, uh, you know, Alan Diarmas is not a big star. And yeah. it turns out she did it. But then it actually turns out that Captain America is yeah. the villain of the piece. <laughs> Again, and the house is So America. it's like, it's yeah. not, but then it is. And it's kind of, it's, it's fun done very way. well. Yeah. And it's worth Diarmas should should be a, well, she's appearing start. in the next Bond she's, film. She's like, again, herself and Daniel Craig literally hopped from this into uh, the next Bond film, which is interesting. But that's that's never going to be like a, the best. Like, she's, I, I think she's really good in this. And like, being a Bond girl is never going to be Like, even when I fleshed to... out but comparatively, Bond girls are still kind of, it, it's, it's not, it's not something that kind of, um, I guess, um, uh, helps the 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 profile it, it, yeah. it can kind of seem like uh yeah, eva green's probably the challenge. only one who's who's probably made something of it in yeah. recent years i've I heard think. her say that her name is evergreen oh apologies <laughs> Funny, darren <laughs> mispronouncing a name never no, happened no but i didn't know that either until <laughs> I, shocked. I, I realized that she there there is a service where evergreen can can talk you to sleep so why would people ever listen to this podcast in fairness <laughs> this is free <laughs> and this is probably less likely to be a kinky sex anyway never mind <laughs> yeah. um, but back to back to the point about the casting actually worth noting michael shannon was the second name cast and apparently johnson found that once he had um once he had craig who apparently signed up immediately and once he had shannon everybody else just sort of hopped on along the way Darmus was actually the hardest one to cast because uh, Darmus got the script um didn't read the script because apparently very few Darmus actors at tanagra um actually do read the script um but she said uh, she said that she got this this screenplay with the character description Latina made good hearted and was like no no way I'm doing this and it's like people told me it was a good script but everybody tells you every script is a good script somebody told her that knock knock was a good script for example um, but yeah so uh, apparently she had to be convinced to read it and then signed on afterwards but it's kind of interesting that she almost passed on the role and Johnson actually went made a point to go out of his way to say he didn't want to cast a recognizable actor in that role in terms of casting he was very happy to fill the rest of the cast with celebrities but he wanted uh, and I know that Darmus has been, um, you know, obviously she's been in Blade Runner and stuff like that. She's. I thought she was incredible in Blade Runner because, I, because, I, because I, like the, that that role in in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, she she like surprisingly it, human for like yeah, the role. Like it was really, yeah, because uh, it it's me it's, that quite, more it's quite thin, her. but she yeah. Yeah. really gives yeah. it a lot. Like yeah. it's sort of purposely thin. Like I remember watching me like, oh god, he's got some sort of software program girlfriend. This could be really, and then. Mostly due to her, like it yeah. sort of it sort of works yeah. so much because his his character is very much kind of like oh you're just a you're just a computer program mm. and you you get the sense from her that that she's trying to say like take me seriously yeah um, I'm yeah. a real person <laughs> I'm a real life person but no like and and she's phenomenal here in fact the entire cast is is phenomenal here and actually to, to bring it back to something Alex mentioned in terms of structure uh, which is very clever the well, movie it starts and ends that's it exactly yeah. um, it's 
it closes its first act. So it does its brief introduction, everybody, with the little names on screen and the stars that you recognize. And again, having stars you recognize in a whodunit is a fantastic like choice because it means that you don't have to remember that it's Linda Drysdale. It's just Jamie Lee Curtis did it, uh, which is a very useful shorthand as, a, as an audience member. But it does kind of the round robin introductions of Unless each of Unless it's like, uh, was, was it, who do you call him? You know, Patrolman... Wagner, yeah, he, <laughs> he did it. Bring in Wagner, yeah. To no, Wagner. <laughs> I love that. It's like <laughs> yeah, it's the red herring. The, the no, tro- the, <laughs> the trooper played by uh, Noah Segan. Yes, uh, he's in like all the he's on all the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so which is gas because again, when I was first watching it, I was like, that guy's really recognizable. Who is, is that? Yeah. And then it's like, oh yeah, it's Tug, the fucking <laughs> idiot Tug from Brick. <laughs> Um, or the kid from Looper who like keeps shooting himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and again, like sort of. Um, but the thing is that it does that round of introductions, and then it immediately tells you what happened, or at least yeah. a narrative that looks like it explains exactly what happened. Now, as the movie goes on, it kind of unravels and kind of spirals out from there. But it gives you that introduction of the flashback that um, that she's having, and then obviously, kind of then within that the story that Harlan Thromley is trying to tell as well. And it kind of, one of the things Johnson's talked about how his favorite part of Murder Mysteries is the bit at the end where the detective explains what's happening and you get flashback sequences of dialogue out of context or in context in order to explain things. And he said that, you know, he watched a lot of Christie adaptations and it was great sitting there timing that because these things go on for like 20 minutes, these sort of flashbacks and monologues. And like he watched... I'm looking back at everything. What did the masturbate Nancy child say? <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to pick the best line, line reading in this, but yeah. that's that's certainly up there. Yeah. Um, but like, <laughs> it's like fi- what is it? You 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 made the help call you you. But my home, my birthright, my family's ancestral home. Yeah. Your your father, your grandfather bought this from a Pakistani real estate agent. Yeah, and like the the bit about not eating one iota. Sweet beans is is so funny, but then. Because it's Michael Shannon and he's so brilliant and intense, he he kicks that open notch again into such ridiculousness where he's just like waving sweet beans, biscuits in his face, going, "You want some cookies?" (laughs) It's like his character is so unhinged at the slightest kind of uh, push. Tremendously funny, like like him in the, the hallway, his kind of like creepy awkwardness. Oh yeah, but but then when when she sort of when she recoils and he's like, no, that that's not what's happening here. Although it is what's happening here. It's like, why are you surprised to find me lurking round your hallway in the dark? There's, there's a lot of great kind of lighting and and stuff going on in this film, as you would kind of expect from a a murder mystery on the moors kind of a thing. Because like he looms over her so much in that scene, and like when he's in the study with her as well, and it's like, oh, we're gonna look after you and all that. But like he terrors over her and then the lighting in both scenes just kind of illuminates his face he looks like a gargoyle (laughs) and like shannon he he makes his living off that creepy face it's no disrespect to him but yeah it's very terrifying i love those sorry he didn't spend hours in makeup (laughs) i I love those interviews with shannon where he can't figure out why he's constantly cast as this intense actor and wonders why he can't get more roles as a romantic comedy Mm, lead mm. like that movie he made with uh, christina hendrix no the christmas one the christmas one yeah. If you've ever seen, you know, the very end of Groundhog Day, mm. where, yes. where he runs up and he's like, thanks for giving us those WrestleMania tickets. 
and it's this like 20 year old Michael Shannon with this like very clean cut look and he's like, dressed in a suit sweet beans amazing I, I was clicking through the channels the other day and, and Pearl Harbor was on and I got like a flash of like young 30 year old Michael Shannon as like a, a pilot in Hawaii and I was like whoa who, who, who cast him in that like the, he, the guy is, is unnerving you know even just sitting there <laughs> he's got all these bruises on his face and someone remarks like why is your face all bruised and he's like oh I'm a surfer you know there's no need for that detail in a film that's about Pearl Harbor he's, he's like that in real life though like he's another one that I love reading interviews from because he's always inadvertently giving kind of great copy yeah. <laughs> I remember when he was asked after because uh, he was in Man of Steel Oh, I think and he was I asked in the run-up yeah. to Batman v Superman who he thought would win in a fight between Batman and Superman. And he's like, I am so utterly uninvested in <laughs> the results of that. I don't care. And yeah, um, But that's what I mean. It's sort of like God taking... would beat them both. <laughs> but wasn't... I, I, kind of, there's, there was another interview... Sorry. Interv- sorry. No, there was another interview where he was, told, he was telling this story about how... Uh, Got locked, I got locked in my trailer one day and I couldn't get out because I had flippers on my hands. Like, so wait, will Zod have flippers on his hands in the movie? No, I'm joking. <laughs> and again, like he's he said that like if you voted for Trump, you deserve, oh, you just to die, you deserve to die. <laughs> yeah. yes. go go to the urn. I think it was. yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like they've had a good life. I think was his position. They probably that? contributed all they can. Sorry, the PR people being like, we, we want him in our movie, but we don't want him on our press tour. Like, is there a way of, of yeah, just limiting him? But yeah, I think casting Michael Shannon, it is like almost, it's a coup in a way, because kind of like Daniel Craig, it's it's so perfect. And it sort of does make you think he's maybe going to be doing a bit more than he actually is. And the film, like going back to what you're saying, that Johnson as a director kind of expects a degree of like film literacy and i think casting michael shannon and casting jamie lee curtis and and all these people really does do that you know even tony collette who you know plays the sort of as we were joking gwyneth paltrow role and and has this whole lifestyle which makes me think as well if people who are really into that stuff are watching these kind of films do they just think oh yeah she's she's talking a lot of sense she's got her life we're rooting for nobody ever thinks these things are about them yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah they always follow somebody who's like yeah, Elon Musk yeah, recently said is Parasite is his favorite film yeah, of the year with Chrissy Teigen yeah. as well so come on guys yeah. like. was it um, oh yeah it's also Adam Driver so I was thinking of thinking of other actors like Michael Shannon who do interviews where they're like why do people think I'm intense mm. I can't figure out why people think I'm intense like, Adam, Adam Driver, Driver could have played the Walt role in this actually okay. give, well, him, that, give him a limp and yeah well yeah. that's that's the speculation that the Knives Out sequel will inevitably feature uh, Adam Driver in a cowboy hat mm. is apparently the big prediction don't care about plot. It will no. just be Adam Driver in a cowboy. Hat. And going back to what you're saying, if they do make sequels, I do love the idea that Daniel Craig just sort of sits in the background while all this all sort of plays out. Like we sort of said, he's not a very good detective, but he is because he does that sort of like, I'm just here and I'm just sort of going to like push the action in a certain way, but not really get that involved all the way up to. And because I remember watching the first time thinking he's not a very good detective at all there's a scene where it shows him literally outside a murder scene yes. singing along on his ipad like completely oblivious <laughs> sondheim, to what's going on another sondheim reference <laughs> i think i wrote it down like blanc is an idiot but then there's the scene but then there's on... a scene at the end where she's like when did you suspect me he's like oh i always knew it was you yeah i was just you know letting this play out and everything which kind of implies to your point and that you know it's it's actually, yeah, he kind of knows what he's doing. Maybe. He's, he Columbo's the audience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, he's just an idiot. But he's such a, he, like, he appears such a charlatan as well, because, uh, like, even even the way he he speaks, what is it, the, the um, I believe you have a 
regurgitative reaction to mistruth it, <laughs> or, uh, or like the, in the southern accent, talk about how the slinky becomes on king. Okay. <laughs> but, but he's like, he's always doing that. Like there, he gets these like big laugh lines, but he'll be in the background of, of scenes and he'll notice something and he'll just go sweet beans. <laughs> or or there's one when when he sees the uh, the toxicology, no the oh. the building when he sees it's burnt yeah. down. It's all just kind of the kind of chaos of that scene, but he just kind of walks up and he goes, "What's the cheese?" It's <laughs> <laughs> like, "Who is this guy?" And then, like we see later on, he's got like a full profile in the New Yorker, <laughs> yeah. like the, the gentleman detective, and a cartoon of him. So he's like a very <laughs> well-known gentleman be, detective. Must be doing something. And I mean, like this is this is the thing that I actually quite like about the movie. And again, this gets back to we talk about Christie, and we talk about the most famous Christie story being Murder on the Orient Express. And a large part of why Murder on the Orient Express is the definitive Christie story is because, well, A, the resolution of, of the, the murder mystery, which is that everybody did it. Mm. Uh, but second of all, the fact that it's the murder mystery where Perot basically throws up his hands and says, actually, it turns out that this investigation is not about determining criminal culpability. It's about justice, and it's not my place to decide what that is. And Knives Out has an element of that. Because you have this big speech that he gives about gravity's rainbow. And it's like, (laughs) I haven't read it. (laughs) Nobody has. Um, But he he gives this big sort of like, I'm a serious detective kind of speech where he talks about arriving at the truth without bias of the head or heart. And again, this gets a kind of like the idea of the story that you're telling and why you're telling it. And he knows from the outset that Marta was involved, as he points out later on by looking at her shoes. But also noticeably, one of the first things that he says to her is, does having a good heart make you a good nurse? And over the course of the film, you see the idea that Blanc, despite having enough evidence early on, or at least enough suspicion early on, to justify suspecting Marta and treating her as a suspect, Instead, he kind of becomes swept up in her narrative. Mm. And you have that sequence. And again, it's a wonderful, the way that it's framed by Johnson, the bit where Marta wants, <laughs> Marta's like, I need to tell the family. It's like, oh, I, I don't think that's a good idea. Mm. Um, but the sequence where she's going to address the family and you have that wonderful, first of all, the reaction shot of them all lined up, arranged with the dog, with the baseball in its mouth, just waiting to hear what she has the to two say. policemen beside Chris Evans. Like, it's ludicrous. Yeah. The, what police department is just like, well, this this <laughs> Southern detective wants us all to like get involved with this murder mystery yeah i'll give you like 10 of my officers and four cars drug, drug, drug crime's been down lately <laughs> yeah. new york whatever yes. yeah because <laughs> they, they, they've everyone's kicked that new fashion drug yeah that's a great line because it's you understand perfectly what he means but yeah. he's so angry like what he's actually saying is meaningless <laughs> It's like, I don't know what any yeah, of those I words don't mean. Care. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, when he's talking about like, like SJW son. alt-right troll, it's like, I don't know what that means. It's like he's but, very political. Yeah. It's amazing the internet these days. <laughs> he's so unaware. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Richard's like the kid's basically a Nazi. Um, but I mean, the thing is that as the movie goes, Blanc becomes more and more invested in Marta's story. So you have that big moment where she's confessing to the family, and over her shoulder in the background, you have him actually reading the toxicology report and it's fantastic to watch because he's resigned at that moment he's accepted this is how things are going to play out reads the toxicology report 
it clears her and that gives him license to storm into the middle of this family affair and not offer an opinion on legal grounds or on you know kind of like investigative grounds or even in terms of grounds of the death of their father um it's like no you are all terrible terrible human beings and the way that you have treated marta is awful and she does not owe you anything and there's a sense that throughout the, the way they've treated her hasn't changed <laughs> yeah. from the, the toxicology report. Yeah. 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 Uh, but it's license. I think it's it's the whole point is and it, it goes yeah. back to being on the roller coaster. You shouldn't ever really look at too many of the elements too far because if if he always knew it was Marta, for instance, when they're walking through the woods and he sees mud and he's like, we have to get the footprints. Right. And then he's like, Marta, come back. I was, there's a lot of scenes in that where he's sort of presented with evidence where surely he's like, yeah, but this yeah, is Ma- Marta. Marta, <laughs> Marta, you carry the, the, the tape there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Of... Oh, right. It doesn't work anymore. Oh, right. And what a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, what an unfortunate coincidence. Um, <laughs> but but yeah. it, there's, there's just something, he knows that she was involved, but there's just something gnawing at him. Mm. The, the donut hole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the donut hole in it. With another donut <laughs> Um, so again, and you, you like know the, what he's talking about. Yeah. Sweet beans. Um, it is worth noting, by the way, the guard played by uh, M. Emmett Walsh, which was supposed to be played by Richard, by Ricky Jay, but he passed away. Funny you should uh, mention filming, that because there's a photo of him. Yeah, I spotted that this time, and there's a photo on the fridge with the magnet of yeah. Ricky Jay, yeah. and I nearly said, "Is that Ricky Jay?" And then was like, "No, that's that's too much of a deep cut." I'll yeah, it no, quiet. it's Ricky it Jay, who's apparently the other security guard working on the residence, but doesn't actually appear in the film. But yeah, like, and, and the film kind of gets tied up in that, because you even have, like, the sequence where he talks to Nana, uh, where he's like, where he has this conversation where he's like, I hope you won't think of them too severely. That was yeah. fantastic, yeah. That, that whole scene. One but, actor, lots of silly lines, but it was just done really, really and, well. And surprisingly touching and emotive as mm. well. And then even later on, the sequence where she's like, I should help them, right? And he's like, oh, I have my own opinion about that. Um, but you have this sense that like Blanc's journey over the course of the film is from that, as you remarked, passive observer, the guy sitting in the background trying to compile information, hitting the piano key in order to get the detective to ask what time you arrived at the residence, and basically becoming swept up in the story, not of the crime, but of the injustice, Mm -hmm. so to speak, and kind of realizing that the real horror here isn't the death of Harlan Thrombey. It's the the treatment of Marta by the family and the way the family has behaved and the way in which, because they've never had to work for their money, they've become so entitled and greedy. They're all entirely worthless. Like, useless people. Yeah. yeah, There's no no reason why they should have so much. Like, there's just an an injustice in so much good things going to to people of so little merit. Yeah. yeah and it's like she's the only character really in the film other than i guess harlan although we never see his writing or anything but she's got like competency and <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. and skills in that and again you it's kind her of, skills that save her in the end because she realizes yeah. subconsciously and and, and again her actual like morals they yeah. whereas they all reveal themselves to be not murderers but morally bankrupt yeah. uh she actually then reveals that she does have kind of a moral core and you yeah. know a bit of decency like, well, that's the difference between her and them they've all not done there's something murder, terribly yeah. wrong it's just wasn't the murder the murder yeah, becomes yeah. like almost like not really the it's focus in, yeah. yeah 
or they're, they're just unworthy. Yeah. Mm. Like you, you look, you look at Ransom's house, and this is a person who's never worked. Mm. Kind of a, well, sorry, no, he says that he, he did you, do research, he was a, a research assistant, but only for or, a summer. He didn't get kept on. Look at his house. Look how nice that is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can assure you, research assistants don't earn that kind of cash. <laughs> well, uh, but one of the things, like we're gonna talk sorry. about. Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead, no, Ram. it was just on on one of the interesting things is that the one of the lines that's repeated all the way through is like, "This is the best thing for you <laughs> when like something bad happens," yeah. and. And it's kind of implied that, yeah, you know, Christopher Plummer's character is rich and he's hoarded his money and he sits in this ridiculous house and he spends all his money on all these things. And then possibly only in the end of his life when someone has literally to be hired to inject him with drugs does he start seeing, actually, maybe, you know, this, this is a terrible thing to do to just constantly give all my family just hundreds of thousands of, of, of dollars. But I, I, I also... without knowing. Exactly, without even, without even thinking, just giving it away, uh, to but keeping it sort of within the family. Um, but there was a line I liked uh, about, I think Chris Evans says it then about how like, and oh, Christopher Plummer says it about how similar Ransom is to him. Yeah. He's like, he's stupid in the same way, but he's also kind of clever in the same way. Exactly. With, with two O's. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting because, yeah, Christopher Plummer presumably There's at so some much point. so in that boy. Yeah. yeah. And especially because it's implied they weren't that wealthy 30 years ago. They bought the house. So he clearly wrote the stories, became successful and all this came from it. But that idea that once you have that sort of wealth and that environment that you maybe just become useless. And I kind of think Chris Evans' line about, and it turns out to kind of be fake, but driving away and realizing he doesn't have this income he has anymore and he realizes he has to look after himself well, and how freeing that was. Well, it, it, it's, not, it's not entirely fake. It's not. He just goes he back just, into the crime. Yeah, he just realizes he can murder his Because he is terrible. <laughs> to your point, they are all worthless. The, yeah. That bit in the film, though, is really well done. And it's it's actually some of the best acting in the film, I think, is Chris, Chris Evans in that middle stretch. Um, because with these kind of characters, you assume you, like they're very, they're fitting very specific purposes. And the first minute that you see Ransom, you're like, oh yeah, he's the useless layabout kind of guy. And Evans can do that very well. He did that in, you know, not another teen movie and Scott Pilgrim and stuff like that. He can embody that very well. And you, you have a certain perception of him. And then he, you think is but he also Martin. spent 10 years as Captain America. But yeah, it's, it's this really cool thing where like, like when, like Christopher Reeves would kind of do the Superman thing yeah. and like oh, yeah. his whole body language kind of changes. Take off the glasses, you see yeah. Ransom and he's kind of like laying around and he has a certain way of speaking and all that. But when it seems like he's helping Marta, even for his own selfish ends, his whole body language changes. Mm. The arms suddenly seem so much bigger in that jumper. Yeah, even got... the jumper is sort of like and torn and, and ratty he... rather than the, the silk cashmere yeah. scarf he was wearing but, earlier. Yeah. But he gets this like really steely gaze and his voice just goes at like one register lower, and it's like he's Captain America. <laughs> he's and it, it's not like he's still you you it's still ransom, and he's still like a scumbag in that. But he's putting on like a different persona, and it, it works like really well. And yeah, it's it's again <laughs> not the real deal because you know, he's still a scumbag. Mm. But yeah, no, the, the casting of the Evans closest to being capable. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, he, he's the most sort of active, shall we say, in yeah. terms. The rest of them most are shouting motivated. at the lawyer, being like, "Let's do something." And well, because he he, <laughs> yeah. he already knows all the things that they have to Google. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like the only other person who could have thought up of of a scheme 
um, like the one that Ransom uh, came up with was was Harley, and yeah. he does. And again, Pretty like much, this thing, yeah, they like, they each have have their very their, similar. But yeah. that's yeah. the thing is that again, this is not to get to like roll your eyes and turn off the podcast sort of about it. Like the thing about <laughs> done that a lot. We, we have done that a lot this week. But like Luke talked about this idea, and again, of, of kind of like America being a place where if you follow the rules, you will win. You'll kind of you'll manage to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and stuff like that. Like a large part of the film is this idea of Marta getting trapped in other people's narratives. Mm. At at the start, we see her getting trapped in Harlan's narrative, where, like, and again, I kind of, oh, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a wonderful... It's like, oh, that, that's, um, that's an interesting and effective way of murdering. Of murder. I kind of love the idea when he's like, when he's thinking he's about to die, but going to get the, the cure, he's just like, well, well I should he, write this down. I, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then even when he, when she reveals that she doesn't have the antidote, um, he's like, well, okay. Yeah. Guess I get to construct one last murder mystery. Let's improv this. Yeah. Let's workshop this idea here. And he like, without enlisting her, she's very clear. She doesn't want to be part of this, but he's like, no, no, no. I've got it. I figured out. I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer. I know how this story's going to go. He never seems to pause for his own mortality or like, yeah. God, I'm going to be dead in like five minutes. It's just like, the game's afoot. Yeah. Quickly, go over there. I'll yeah. look here. I'll get my best knife to my throat. Yeah, yeah. great. I, you know, I've, I've kind of like, I've been workshopping this for a little while. I've got some great material yeah. I've always wanted to use. And again, like it happens in the middle section of the film as well, where Marta, instead of working within Harlan's narrative, she then ends up trapped in the story that Ransom mm. is trying to tell. And again, Ransom is trying to construct this elaborate story. And again, this gets back to the donut hole within a donut hole because it's, you know, not to get too hip and modern and with it, it's a post-truth whodunit where the film is basically an exercise yeah, in chaos true. theory. Yeah. It's it's an idea that you have nobody in this film planned for the events to play out exactly as they did. It was as um as Blanc, as Blanc sorry as Blanc describes it himself. Um, it is a tragedy of errors. Everybody is planning something. Everybody has a separate scheme. Fran is trying to blackmail Ransom. Ransom swaps the medication, but then the medication is accidentally swapped back. But then Harlan, then she actually reads the labels and Harlan ends up staging his own suicide and committing suicide and creating a dead body. And most like and, that, like post-truth thing, it gets so complicated that at a certain point you're just like, okay, but who who's bad here and who's good? Just tell me who's going to jail, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and again, like that's the thing is where, and again, part of this, is just formula genre stuff where Johnson's been like I watched Murder on the Nile Peter Ustinov talks for 20 minutes I wanted to do something like that with Daniel Craig but it does feel like it's kind of a very modern murder mystery because it's like you get the standard here's what happened flashback explanation framing story context within the first half hour and then the rest of the movie is basically but but no it didn't or maybe it did oh, but in another one of the way. interesting when... things I'm sorry about that sorry. was the 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 um right from the start they show a lot of scenes from different perspectives so i know they have they show the birthday cake for instance yeah, and yeah. christopher Miller being presented and each character imagines himself lovingly beside their father and, and and all that but then later on we see tony collette describe her story about going up and checking on them and christopher Miller is so much warmer with her and yeah. uh, with her in the, and martin's in the background and martin's in the background but later we see it from martin's perspective and christopher Miller's like go to bed go to bed <laughs> and she's like just you know do you want to we want time to talk about that in the morning you know the money thing and he's like go to bed go to bed and it's fascinating because it, it does play into that point about like they all have their version of what happened or what might happen and, and their own take on it. it what's interesting is that in Marta's like perception like when she finds uh, the maid or whatever Fran, Fran. Fran 
She, her, Franny, not her, her name, not her, her job. Her perception and her assumption is that she's guilty and yeah. that she's saying that she's guilty, but actually she's saying you did. Like, it's yeah. very corny. It's <laughs> like, I, I was all on board. I, I had a mo. I and was about my punch That's here. one of the ones where it's like the setup of it is very clunky because yeah. like his name is Ransom, which is bizarre. And he's just walking <laughs> up and it's like, hello, Hugh. And he's like, be quiet. Only the poor people in the movie call, call me Hugh. <laughs> this will be important later on, I swear. I mean, well, like, yeah. like, why? <laughs> just to have another kind of uh, example of the kind of Rashomon effect because <laughs> kind of you, you have it as well with them all saying kind of um, uh, she um, she's she's from, from Uruguay. Ecuador she's Par- from Ecuador Peru Brazilian, Brazilian. we're not going to have a Brazilian coming yeah. here and take her money and they, they they have it as well where where she's trying to recall what he was saying and he's like um, oh before the carved elephant after, after the carved elephant yeah. Be after, after four, the, the current elephant. Which uh, great, and I mean, even my my favorite one of those is the moment early on where you have Richard, and again, Richard seems to be the well, character who I kind of love. Where he's where, recalling the Trump, uh, and where yeah, where he's recalling she's like part of the family, and you yes. get that shot of him beckoning her, and oh, it looks yeah. so warm and friendly, come and it's like in. come on, yeah. come on in and join the conversation. Join the fire. And then later on, you get the the actual conversation that was happening at that point, yeah. and it's more like you know, come into my as a point to me. Now, yeah, I'm yeah. not saying those kids deserve to be in cages the parents <laughs> have you know. some responsibility but it's that kind of Rashomon thing again it serves the film thematically because their perception is all like clouded because of their privilege and mm-hmm. they're all, you know it's a great gag that they that I'm they're the all like made man yeah yeah and it's a great and gag. they genuinely believe it yeah but like the the whole runner about oh she's from brazil she's from paraguay from uruguay it's that they they're not entirely sure because it doesn't matter to them. They just know she's from somewhere poor. Yeah, <laughs> and you know even all this stuff about oh your family and you're part of the family and we're going to look after you and all that. Um, not only is it patently untrue, but there's really no there's never really any sense that Marta believes that or that that's important to her in any way. Mm-hmm. Like she's she's close with Harlan and she has like a friendship with him, but there's never really I know she's kind of like shell shocked because of the the deaths and all that. It's funny, to your point as well, like the only characters we actually see upset about the death are really Jamie Lee Curtis and and Marta herself. Yeah. And to be honest. Um, and uh, yeah, like it's they all they all think that the best thing that she would surely want <laughs> is to be part of the family. Yes. And all that. But that's not really the case. And even again, the the running joke about being like outvoted and all that again, yeah. it speaks to their delusion and their kind of self uh, deception. I'm the good one because yeah. yeah, like I'm the good one, and it, and it's it's a total cop out because yeah. if they really wanted her to be there, she would have been. She, yeah. she would have been. It's very you know? si- it's very similar to and again, this is the thing with Meg, where Meg is like a character from Get Out, um, where it's it's the interesting thing where you're presented with Meg as a character who seems more sympathetic than the rest, who ends up becoming arguably more despicable because at least you know with Jaden Mitchell, you know that he's masturbating to pictures of dead deer in the downstairs bathroom, yeah. as opposed to talking, you know, sharing weed. Meg and, pretends and, she's her friend, yeah, and as a connection, and then uses I mean, like, the information she, she, about her she, mother. Meg is introduced, like walking out, being like, yeah. "Don't call her the help." Yeah, yeah. and again, it's like, what does Marta ever like? Believe that. care about like yeah. the police calling her the help? It's, it's never well, really I mean, shown yeah. that that would make a difference to her. Because when Marta comes back to the house, she doesn't actually seem that upset when she meets Meg again. There's no sense of betrayal because Marta. Didn't Never really expect expected, that much yeah. better, yeah. Um, and it kind of it's interesting because it gets at like we talked about this at Parasite. It gets at the idea of the rich not being smart or canny or shrewd or being like the rich not being rich because they're better than us or being or better than poor people or kind of Darwinianly selected because they were poor ones. 
And they had that kind of appetite for... Yeah, that to, myth to, that you have to, with, yeah. with the kind of American dream where it's like, you come over and you build an empire with Once nothing but thunders. She kind of takes away any sort of... Yeah. I mean, there's that line in Parasite where they talk about, you know, she's rich, but she's kind. No, yeah, she's kind because, because she's, she's rich. rich. Yeah. And there's a real sense of that in that, in that, like, the Thromleys are quite pleasant, you know, in inverted commas, towards Marta in the first half of the film. But as soon as the power dynamic shifts... Yeah suddenly they don't they can't afford to be anymore yeah and again it's it's a really cool sequence in the film and like johnson does occasionally do showy stuff with the camera but it's generally he generally does it maybe once in a film and it's generally serving a purpose the the as soon as they yeah as soon as as soon as they find out that she's got all the money they turn into this like shambling mass yeah. <laughs> of, of yeah. kind of yeah. like dawn of the and, dead yeah. kind of yeah. thing and the the camera goes handheld and it suddenly becomes a lot more like it's it's been this very measured uh very kind of deliberately composed kind of film yeah. with lots of you know all the and then lightning and, all and, and then you you literally see the camera come <laughs> off yeah and then, and, and, and then she's in the car and they're swarming around the car it is it's a scene from a zombie movie yeah. basically yeah because Chris Evans saying this is the best thing for you. Yeah, because they're <laughs> they're cannibalistic and dead inside. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, in terms of, is there anything else we want to talk about? There's one thing that I noticed, and, and maybe people picked up on this the first time they watched it, but I thought it was really cool detail because it is that kind of post truth thing. I do kind of have some reservations on whether Johnson is the best person to be telling these kind of stories about, you know, the Latin immigrant Americans experience and, and, and all that. But apart from it being post-truth, and, and again, you think that Daniel Craig is just this kind of blowhard, but his philosophy that, you know, the truth will basically just kind of sort itself out and emerge uh, if you anticipate the terminus of gravity's rainbow. <laughs> it does Luke bear out read his notes for that. In, in this kind of interesting runner with the baseball. Yes, where it if, keeps coming back. Yeah, because what happens throughout the course of the film is that Don Johnson is trying to cover up him cheating on, on Jamie Lee Curtis, and he goes to Harlan's desk. He finds the letter, and there's nothing in it as far as he can see. And in his kind of frustration, he throws the basketball out the window. Baseball, sorry. Baseball, sorry. Basketball. Ben, <laughs> ben, ben, Benoit Blanc then picks up the baseball and just kind of pockets it, and he just kind of has it for a bit. Then the dog brings him the evidence from the, the bit of wood. And then he throws the ball for the dog to catch. Then the dog has the ball in the scene where Marta's Marta's going to confess. And Jamie Lee Curtis takes the ball from the dog. And then at the end of the movie, Jamie Lee Curtis goes to put the ball back in Harlan's office. And that's when she finds the letter. And because she knows all the games and stuff that she would always play with Harlan, she knows how to then see the message and then the truth suddenly comes out. But I mean, there's also and, a, and no one like a Rube Goldberg. And yeah, and no one was <laughs> no one was trying to make that happen. Yeah. Harlan was dead, and no one's trying to reveal that. He's been cheating on her. But the, yeah. you know, <laughs> and you again, just got to be patient, and, and it'll again, all come out. I which is again not necessarily true. Yeah, maybe when Johnson started working on this, that you could still believe that you know the truth coming out about people that are bad would. After thirty <laughs> years, the government have to release those papers that tell you if your if your spouse is was having an affair with you. And a great detail at the end, where like the 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 focus is is not on Johnson because it's it's showing Marta up in the thing, but he's just got a black eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Cause, even because Jamie Lee Curtis has found out that he's been cheating on her, and then the next time you see him, he's just got a black eye. I noticed. But that. I I kind of also love the sequence it's where they're walking ransom to the police eye. car. 
and uh, Johnson's uh, Richard Drysdale has a big wad of cash out while trying <laughs> yeah. to talk to the police officer. It's a very long perp walk as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I imagine they brought him all the way to the car and then the rear is, oh, we haven't read your Miranda right. Yeah, yeah that's, that's just we rehearsal. Can't technically put him in the car. Uh, and she again, goes and uh, makes a cup of coffee yeah. and, then goes, and then she's like, oh, I'm going to put him in the car. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, that, that sequence that I, and again, the, the setup and payoff, so much of this movie is so carefully constructed. Like the fact that before she uses the lighter to read the ink, you see her reading letters from Harlan up in her room that have scorch marks on them because this is obviously how they used to communicate with one another it's a sequence where uh walt comes in and they hug again like a little touch everything in this movie is so immaculately constructed and actually i, I do that was kind of one of the things i was wondering about that luke brought up there is is there a sense of of kind of and this is one of the things that i read online when the criticisms of the movie and i'm not entirely sure i buy it but i think that it's probably worth discussing and maybe there's something to it but the argument of it compels me um but the, the argument that the film while it's dealing with this this heavy subject matter and in you know in inverted commas the house is america or or that sort of stuff it retains a kind of an optimism and a kind of a humanism that is maybe as much a product of privilege as anything that the the kind of yeah. thrombies have themselves where as as luke pointed out the idea is that you believe that truth will win out that gravity's rainbow will reach its terminus um, and at that terminus you will find truth and that in the end Marta will be vindicated by playing by her own rules he sits down and he tells her you won not because you played by Harlan's rules not because you played by Ransom's rules you won because you played by your own rules and is that a comforting belief I think that's tied to the ending which I, I thought about a little bit more now because again first time I saw it I was like awesome a Rolling Stones song this is great and I <laughs> probably missed the coffee cup and stuff but um you know, when she sort of says, what should I do with this family? And Daniel Craig says, well, I have an opinion on that. But again, you should follow what your heart because you you are going to be correct about whatever you do. And then it shows her sort of like considering them with the my house, my rules coffee cup. But it, it did make me start thinking like, well, initially I'd be like, well, get get the hell out of my house, you bunch of cre- creepy rich weirdos. Like, obviously, you're all gone. Cages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But no, that's well, I mean, kind, they did put their of, kid in cage. They did put like they did put Richard and Linda's kid in a cage. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, is what is the film like? Sort of suggesting that they are now her responsibility somehow because they're sort of like a bunch of useless, horrible children that she now has to like I mean, has they, inherited, or can she just cut all ties with them? And like, at, at what like what? Is, I guess what the film is saying is that it's now on. That's now up for her to decide. That's I think where it leaves. Yeah, it, yeah because okay. it's very much like. She is literally looking down on them. She's literally on the other half of the frame. It's <laughs> a fantastic shot. Actually, again, it's, it's very heavy handed. I really it's like it, yeah. But, obvious, it is, but I love it. No, yeah. it's But it's, yeah. it yeah. is like, well, you, you're the one with the... It's your house, your rules. Yeah. You know? You're literally lording it over us. Uh, no, but, but that's but what I mean. I don't know that Johnson become... has it in him necessarily to carry that thought through to yeah. any real conclusion i don't know i mean like she's she's now the you know rich person in a giant house that's far too big for her and looking at a crowd of people horrible terrible worthless people as we've already said but it's just it's interesting because like is she now just going to rule over this publishing empire and gradually become a version of christopher Plummer, or is that going to be anyway it probably is a good ending for not necessarily saying that one particular thing is going to happen but i did think it was interesting and again i think this is probably a product of like it being a really good murder mystery and exciting roller coaster movie and trying to make some of the points that it's making because it 
when I watched it the first time, and again, as I've watched it a couple of times more, I've kind of warmed on a little bit. My one big issue was the presentation of Marta as like this borderline angelic kind of saint-like figure, the point where she literally cannot lie. Hmm. Like it's literally physically I, impossible uh, for Marta to lie. I thought she and, was speaking metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like he the, definitely didn't think it was no, metaphorical. He definitely <laughs> didn't. Because uh, he, he moves. Miss Trooping. Thought you were um, uh, metaphorically regurgitated to <laughs> Uh, but like the the film's presentation of Marta as this kind of angelic perfect figure and as you point out like the suggestion of what's going to happen and he's like well I have my own opinion and you should follow your heart the implication being that his opinion is probably a little harsher yeah. than hers is given that she began with you guys have been so kind to me and yeah. I'm so sorry I let you all down and he's like nope nope not what happened at all but even um, the way she can trust ransom someone who literally doesn't want the help calling him a certain name and then she's like okay yeah let's let, i trust you you know yeah. she is very or, kind i of, hope ransom didn't try to cover for me yeah, the worst thing she, that ransom could have done would be to try to protect try to me cover for poor she, you yeah. she immediately forgives meg as well yeah right? yeah but like and again there's a there's a weird sense of her and again this is the thing where it's almost like a model kind of minority sort of thing where it's she is literally perfect and i understand that it's symbolically and like in terms of the, the construction of the plot it just it does feel sometimes like marta's less of a character mm. i suppose they're, they're all archetypes like i mean i suppose none of the problems are like three-dimensional people i think none that's the her performance like i think yeah. a lot of the character like michael shannon in particular he's great but he's doing his terrifying gargoyle thing whereas the performance of anna the arnas in this role as marta actually is the heart of the film. She plays it completely straight. Like, yeah. one of the things that I found about Brick going back was, like, it's amazing how straight they play that film because it is ludicrous at points. But with this film, Daniel Craig is, you know, he's making, like, he's rolling his R's on certain words and stuff, and you have a lot of over-the-top performances and characters, but um, Anna Darnas, as, as Marta, never really does that. She plays it completely straight, and I think that's why she's so good in this film. And yeah. But that that is a good point about, like, she is a bit sort of perfect sometimes, but I think her performance kind of gets through that. You and, know? Yeah, and your, your, your point is a good one, because she is the heart of the movie. Yeah. yeah. Like, they, you, you don't want to kind of go away from the movie thinking, oh, was she that great, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what's, I think, in her performance and that kind of, what comes across as angelic a lot of the time is her actually being very reserved and, yeah. and stuff and you realize that that's because she her main concern in all this even though she feels for harlan and she actually has some sympathy for the other members of the family it's her family that she's really concerned about and like she's actually so terrified mm. of of her mother and you kind of it's a i wouldn't say it's subtle but it's a kind of uh kind of gently done scene with her and her mother and she comes home and her mother's watching Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> In Spanish. Yeah, um, and like they just kind of hold hands and it's like this, uh, she's away from the house, she's away from the murder and she's away from all this like confusing. Sweet beans. And this is what's important to her. Mm. It is very idealized. Like I think. It is, um, but it's it goes back to that house thing I said at the start that you leave the literal sort of bonkers yeah. haunted house murder mystery and you go home and you just watch it through a TV with your mum. And this is that's what's life. real. Really. Yeah, and that's what's real, exactly. All right, then. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Um, not, not, not very many um, uh, two, uh, established 250 tropes. tropes. But there is the... Um, well, the one, coroner's one, house did end up inappropriately smoking. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. But any wasted but... food, though? I didn't see any wasted food. <laughs> no, either. no. But but one one that probably should become a two fifty trope because we see it in so many movies is drink driving. <laughs> the thing of it is, like, will you have a drink, Marta? It's like I can't drink. No, I'm technically working. Not I can't drink. I'm driving home. Yeah. And uh, like, how many drinks do they have in 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 the bar? Yeah. yeah. And then they go for a police chase. You're right. Um, and I do love the kind of low budget kind of police chase with the I am literally <laughs> was, flooring it, which that is was the stupidest. Police <laughs> chase. I like I like the shade on Baby Driver as well. That was yeah, I thought it was good. And also the idea that Lakeith Stanfeld will just go back to his cop will just go back to like regular police work after yeah. this, where he's like, you know, he consistently throughout the movie he's like, Benny, come on, yeah. really, <laughs> really, Benny. Weeks off, man. Weeks off. Like I, 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 I feel like um, because 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 people, including me, like Lakeith Stanfield, are probably going to kind of um, uh, congratulate or celebrate his performance in this. But he's not playing a detective at all. No, <laughs> no, he's <laughs> just there to, for somebody to to expose. But it's to. It's, yeah, it's it's great because it's so weird. Like he's he's. he's 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 like um, he's watching. He's rolling his eyes. Like Like he rolls his eyes a couple of times at like the ridiculous. And like picking his ear and stuff. (laughs) Like Keith Stanfield just happened to be on location in Massachusetts when they were filming. That's exactly how it feels. It feels like like like, he's so. There's a bit where he sits down with his gun. Where he's stoned. Yeah, Yeah. there's a bit where he sits down with his gun and his gun goes into his his leg and you actually actually see him adjust it. And that's such a classic like actor thing because you know they they're not used to yeah, wearing exactly. a gun unless you're Don Johnson presumably so you can like <laughs> actually sit down you have to move it and that's such a good like little thing to your point of being like is he a detective or did like Benoit Blanc hire this man to like <laughs> be part of his community theater reveal of all this I kind of like the idea that like his character isn't used to this happening and there's a sense like he talks about this where it's it's primarily because Blanc is there as a celebrity that they're doing this where he's like it's an open and shut suicide case of a very eccentric billionaire why are we here what are you doing well, uh, the police department are very clear it's like I know your feelings I know this is an open and shut case I know it'd be good for us to just close this but this guy's a celebrity so you need to <laughs> we could get good him. coverage in the yeah. New Yorker you yeah. know how that plays in Massachusetts right you <laughs> a follow up story remember that guy we covered there's some other stuff that's but it's, it's great because like he's so not there for it and it's like come on man this is just such a simple case but it, like Blanc is flanked on both sides by him and then oh, the Segan, who's like yeah. so here for everything <laughs> and like every like so there's like a secret passageway and it, what I don't remember the title of the thing a killer for all seasons killer yeah. for all seasons <laughs> from like, the murderous menagerie trilogy he's, he's just so like wow yeah. <laughs> he's just so blown away by it the bit where he actually by surprise yeah. <laughs> no, no, no that's Hallmark the Hallmark movie you know yeah. that the the McKellar, the, the actor named that, that isn't actually a Hallmark movie, but she did send Rian Johnson a gift as oh, a thank you nice. for inventing. She's from oh. um, Wonder, Wonder Years, yeah. yeah. So so it's conceivable that she would be in a Hallmark she... movie. Um, I think she's angling for a part in Knives Out too as well. Just very quickly on the sweater, because it's, it's worth noting the sweater oh, and the costume. They're sensational, those iron jumpers. I want one. Well, they are. They become a viral sensation. The Irish um, company that sells the model that appears in the film sold out before Christmas at $150 a piece, the, which is kind of great. I'd love to see it. Yeah. The, the costume design from top to bottom is sensational. Like the, the, His jumpers kind of steal the show, but like even... I like to think there's like an empire now in Galway. <laughs> some rich old man being like, I now have an iron jumper empire. 
But like now. even Daniel Craig's coat, I really want that coat. It looks yeah. very but comfortable. His like, cigars were like a foot long. Like he yeah. <laughs> had a cigar at the start and at the bottom. And then it was like, that's going to take like three hours to smoke. And then it was and done like, by the time. That's why there was so little inappropriate smoking. It was just it's, one big long smoke. Yeah, it's like, uh, we'll talk to you inside. Actually, no. Can we have it outside? Because this cigar is going to take an awful lot of time. And it's like, you know, can you please finish that cigar so we can continue interviewing people? You've got Jamie Lee Curtis's very expensive looking but gaudy business outfit which came from versus... Jamie Lee Curtis herself wow. her idea yeah. she pitched that um, she sorry Jamie Lee I didn't mean to say that they were gaudy <laughs> no no it's, it's based so. on her friend Patty Rockenwagner okay. <laughs> that sounds like a rich person even the <laughs> colours though like Jamie Lee Curtis like wearing red but Don Johnson wears blue like he wears that sort of like rich guy fleece thing with a shirt underneath and, like, and then jeans and stuff but the characters and the colours were so good and like Ricky Ricky Linsome is so like kind of prim and proper with the pearls and everything whereas Michael and the, Shannon and the hair is just... pulled back I love that He's she just, is, she is my rock. Jesus, Donna. <laughs> I like, but Michael Shannon is just casually badly dressed. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of a slow. And it's and also like, like wearing a cast that's never really explained. Like I thought he had a limp, but then at the end when I saw him fully, he was very much like in a in a sort of boot. You yeah, know? Um, it's like he hurt it when he forgot his it, or when he started running after. Yeah, um, uh, Martha. Yeah. I love the sequence where he's wrestling with Richard. You want to go now? You want to go? Yeah. And it's like I feel like if Michael Shannon didn't have that energy, um, like Martha has, like she she wears these kind of button down kind of jumpers and these culottes all the time. And it's 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 not the same ones, but it's generally the same outfit. And the clothes are much more kind of down market than when, than what everyone else is wearing. And yeah, yeah. And costume details. design deserves props and, and, and the set design the googly eyes in, <laughs> in, in, in Harlan's office right behind oh, him is. like he's got all this Sweet bees in his yeah. house it's ridiculous but just very quickly before we move on to the costume design it did win the uh, costume awards it won the costume designer awards the, the best yeah the costumes. It's, it's an important step on the road to the Oscars it won okay. the best dressed in a contemporary film award actually um, wow yeah I know um, I suppose if you have costume awards you, you, you probably you do get, get quite categories. specific yeah, yeah. Yeah. but no that, that's the big one that's best like the, wig. that's yeah. like the best yeah. picture because it's um, seen like period costuming is seen as being like kind of hackish thing. and kind yeah. of like you know like period costume is like oh sure you can show off there it's yeah. like if you can if you make a contemporary film pop in costuming it's seen as being a bigger deal that's, that's among cool. the you know, that, among the also has kind of that brilliant contemporary costume design it seems like period costume would be the one that would be more likely to win the Oscar oh it is that's that's the thing that's why certain members of the costume design awards guild kind of look down on the Oscars as a kind of a charlatan's award because they tend to award uh, period piece dramas because it's more showy Sorry, this has turned into an entire. I was, but I was going to say, is there like an equivalent of the Razzies for costumes? No, I, no. I don't know if it goes quite that deep, which is a shame. What would be your Razzie well, for costumes? They, maybe the, the Razzies co- have a costume category. <laughs> the one, that would involve the only a level time of I've ever the Razzies, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the only time I've ever been annoyed is I was over in America and I went to like some fancy screening of one of the the Hobbit films and it was like done in super high def because he oh, shot it like 40 that. frames per second. But you could see all the wig lines and like the bad cut and like the, the, <laughs> the labels under costumes because it was so detailed. That uh, is the problem with like ultra high definition. Yeah. It's like you look you look at kind of your action hero. The stubble. You can see the yeah. special <laughs> effects makeup. Yeah. I don't know. 
Oh, by the way, Daniel Craig's stubble was very... Oh, towards um, the end, yes. Yeah. And, and I quite like that it seemed to be... It seemed to develop over the course of the film. He was quite... I thought he was clean-shaven early on and gets gradually more stubbly as the film goes on. I also loved that, like, when he's figured it all out and for his 20-minute monologue, he takes off his jacket, rolls up his sleeves, and tucks his, his tie in. Yeah. And that would have been something... My dad was a doctor, so, like, he, he, he used to do that uh, similarly. And you'd sort of see him, and I was thinking, oh, it's like, a bit, as you're about to go into surgery... But then he just explains everything. Then he just puts his coat back on and takes it <laughs> off. Like he doesn't do that for any purpose other than so I'm look, now going to explain a dissect the mystery. Yeah. He didn't do the thing where he turns on a tap with his elbows. Just in terms of, of kind of Evans's sweater. Um, apparently he stole the sweaters from the wardrobe afterwards. Um, and apparently actually to speak about the level of thought that goes into the... in for a penny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well commit more. Another example of... red of, sweater. Another um, example of millionaires literally being like, I'm yeah. taking that. That's yeah. mine. Buy your own. We sell them in Galway, Chris Evans. Um, but it, it is worth noting that to give an example of the level of thought that goes into costuming on this, they decided that he'd have the sweaters that cost $150 imported directly from Ireland, but they'd make it tatty. They'd put little holes in it and it's kind of frayed at the collars in order to demonstrate how little he actually cares for his clothes, yeah. which is quite uh, I like a that, very nice yeah. touch as well. But anyway, sorry, back to the house. The house was rented. They found it in Massachusetts. Um, it was like the, he was writing the script at the time, so he was able to tailor it specifically to the house. They actually rented uh, all those automatons. They did, they, those, those things didn't come with the house. The house wasn't perfect. I was going to say, because imagine watching that as the owner being like, are, are they making fun of us? Yeah. <laughs> um, what they do is actually between takes, apparently the actors didn't go back to their trailers. They'd actually just hang out on set and they obviously chat and they trade stories. Apparently Jamie Lee Curtis, as you might imagine, has the best Hollywood stories, mm. but they would actually turn on the automatons because many of them worked. And they'd actually <laughs> haunted. <laughs> but yeah, they could do things like write letters and stuff like that. Right, like write an entire letter in like what looks like hand handwriting, which is quite terrifying. Wow. Yeah. That that's just something that used to. <laughs> that is an upsetting like his house is so full of garbage though and again it is a very subtle detail of the narcissism like you you kind of are like oh well it's it's a you know it's a kind of a pastiche kind of thing of course the murder mystery writer would live in this monument to himself yeah but like he's got like just doll houses and like the, the i mean the central kind of knife centerpiece thing yes it's so bizarre don't talk about the knife and they, the, they the do chair. such a really good job of always keeping it in your head like it's it's always kind of around while characters are doing something else in the scene and then just right at the very end it becomes important yeah. it's kind of what we were saying about the, the, knife the second viewing like when in his little attic room there's a, a fully stuffed leopard chasing a fully stuffed terrified monkey and they're both just hanging from the ceiling and it's only when you've seen it you know what happens that you start to wander and being like good god there's there's a, a fully stuffed terrified monkey being chased by a leopard and that's just something they have in their attic you know i mean the the chair was actually an industrial barbecue grate um actually um, apparently Johnson wanted it to look like a religious icon made of knives. It should feel like a target made of knives. They apparently had to, um, like the knives on it, they couldn't afford to buy them. They had to rent them. 
apparently 80% of the knives on it were rentals and they had to be given back at the end of the film, which is quite interesting as well. Unless Chris all Evans these, stole some for his the set. Yeah. All these cool local guys who own lots of knives. Yeah. And just want to be in a Rian Johnson <laughs> yeah. film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, I kind of, I love the... the way... like a sting for the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got a knife collection? <laughs> Come on. I, I feel, I feel like a knife collection is probably the lowest of the <laughs> red flags. Set uh, up like fair. a camcorder in their back garden with a samurai sword doing their moves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, don't worry, we caught it on Nanny Cam. Yeah, speaking we have... of knives, like it's named after a Radiohead song. Isn't it, it is indeed. Knives yes. Out, yeah. Nothing. They, according to Johnson, they couldn't afford the rights to it. Um, again, blooded. Maybe, yeah, he, maybe he... the the next, like maybe all of them will be named after Radiohead songs. Oh, That's I'm waiting for cool. the cybercrime one called OK Computer. Yeah, exit music for a film starring Daniel Craig coming next year it's amazing the amount of times that's been used as a as sexy music for a film. film it's almost like, like it suggests itself move. that's like <laughs> they they put that in as a placeholder and then they can't think of anything better well that's apparently the issue with modern film music is that they use temp tracks and then yeah. composers are told to make music that sounds like the temp track because people are like they're, they've already associated it in their heads the, the people with making the edit the and the rhythm of the that's not necessarily a problem I mean, it depends on the kind of talent of the, the person doing it. Like, like the, the for for um, uh, for Ennio Morricone, um, he 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 was he was given a piece by Bach that that um, Jeremy Irons was 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 actually playing um, for uh, the mission, um, and he says, "Oh, how how can I improve on?" on this like kind of uh, mass in C minor by by yeah, but it's, it's, it's and, and, then, and then he produces Gabriel's oboe so yeah, but it's, like, it's more like sequences where Danny Elfman is given while well, we scored this to a Hans Zimmer track just on score it's I, worth I, mentioning I, no go ahead sorry the the score in this is quite good a, again in that kind of parody kind of way uh, the score is done by Johnson's own cousin who's done yes. all of his films and again just where you're kind of like well, wondering all bar one how, he's a self-made man because yeah you're just <laughs> kind of wondering how in ryan johnson is and how and how well he can actually critique this kind of thing if you're his cousin and you're sitting there and the character's going like he's really good at what he does and he's really he's built himself up uh all by himself and every other character going are you baiting ryan johnson <laughs> if i was his cousin i'd just be like oh hey look like, man you asked me to that. do this <laughs> i've done other films um all right um so i think that about wraps it up unless there's anything else you want to talk about anything jumping out at people anything that we haven't discussed already? no i really like the end music i'm a big fan of like music as you leave the cinema thinking about a film and if you can get that just right i think it can really add to your like walking away feelings and this is a great great version i then then read that rian johnson used to work in a um a cinema and one of the reasons he picked this song was because he, you know, knows that you have to go around and like sweep up all the popcorn afterwards after everyone's left. So if you can play like a catchy song, it kind of makes that a bit easier. And I appreciated that. So yeah, which is quite lovely. And again, he's he's been very active in kind of like building a culture around it. So things like sweaters only screenings, for example, of it, <laughs> and kind of like you know, and then Johnson is is a huge nerd as we've discussed. He's a good already. dude though. Like well, I, people, I yeah. people are porky pigging it. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Took me a second, but yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, straight up, yeah. but I don't think Porky Pig would wear it. Straight up, Mickey Mousing it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, more along the lines of that. sorry, but more along the lines of he's also done commentaries and stuff like that as well, and he's been very vocal talking about. Like again, I'm I'm a huge fan of Johnson, and he seems like somebody who actually loves what he's doing, which is quite helpful when you're mm. doing this sort of thing. All right, then. So I think that about wraps it up. We barely mentioned Star Wars as well, which is great. Which yeah. is great. <laughs> <laughs> 
Just to um, we all loved the last jedi and that's what everyone thought <laughs> and the rise of skywalker um which again noticeably yeah the, i'm i'm kind of waiting for like the the moment where jj Abrams is hired to make the sequel to knives out it turns out that marta was secretly a thromley all along mm. that's kind of the moment that i'm waiting for with knives out too yeah um but anyway so before we go we normally ask guests to recommend something for listeners so if there's something you're enjoying at the moment it could be a film a tv show podcast book life experience, uh, whatever it is, if you'd like to share it with listeners. So I'll ask Andrew to go first. Well, I recommended this movie, I think, on, on, on a previous episode. So I'm not sure you I'd... can recommend it again after. No, um, <laughs> go see I'll, it again. I'll, I'll recommend another movie that I believe we'll be covering, which which is another... Um, uh, we're, we're, we're post-spoiler uh, zone, so it's, 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 another, it's another woman gets big house... I'm sorry, Little Women. Yes, which we have already covered several which weeks we ago. we have already woman covered several weeks house ago. Story. <laughs> <laughs> woman gets big house stories. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a genre onto it's itself. A I, 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 love that, list. I, I love that we kind of like, we tried to position Knives Out as part of the... As, Part of the eat, part of eat the rich sort of cinema, including films like Joker and Parasite and kind of Knives Out shows like Succession. But it's really a larger part of the women get big house movement. I mean, we can all identify with the struggles of, of getting a house. So absolutely, I just love Little Women. Is woman gets big house. Little Women, big house. Wait, look, That's we are right there. In, in Ireland. We we are in the middle oh. of a of a moment where where kind of rich people are looking at us and going. If it were up to me, you would have a house. Yeah, there. but I was outvoted. <laughs> <laughs> this will probably come out after the election as well. I it presume. will indeed. So, yeah. yeah, fun yeah. stuff. But don't. Yeah, this is one of the things where we wonder how. This no, no, it's fine. Once people reveal the truth that they're bad people, it all works itself out. Sorry, I'm now imagining Martin Lawrence in Little Woman's house. Um, so if you skipped uh, the Little Women uh, podcast. Uh, podcast and went straight to Knives Out. Um, go back to the... Uh, listen to that podcast up until the point where we tell you to watch the movie. Then go watch the movie. Or maybe we won't tell you to watch the movie, but I've already told you to watch the movie. <laughs> but you may hear this later. So, yeah, enjoy. Andrew's recommendation is like donut hole. <laughs> it's, it's like a, a hole at the center. Anyway, sorry. So, Luke or Alex... Sure. Um, I I would recommend Uncut Gems, which is now should be on Netflix. And, yes. Uh, I, it I, actually physically is on Netflix now. We're not releasing it in the past. Fantastic, okay. fantastic. Um, so yeah, I would recommend everyone go and watch that. Um, I was saying I recently did the sort of like year in review episode of the 250, and I think I picked like something like Ad Astra. I was like, oh, that was a solid film. But like, I wish I could go back and be like, no, it's Uncut Gems. Like everyone should go go see Uncut Gems. I saw this film. I, and immediately went back into the cinema and saw it again. It's I've like, heard it's a disgrace that Adam Sandler isn't kind of nominated. That yeah, it, like, like sorry that 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 he was the, that he was quite. The so thing I'd say it's it's like deserving. a perfect. Yeah, he's so deserving, and it's like such a perfect Adam Sandler role because it taps into that 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 inherent like you kind of do get the feeling that he kind of maybe hates himself and Adam he could Sandler. explode and yeah and any moment will just start screaming and pulling stuff apart yeah. the same kind of idea that paul thomas anderson took from for uh, a punch, for a club. P- punch drunk club that's why the people love- who didn't like adam sandler taking that i think that um, well, so much adam Ramona sandler Mayo comedy spoke very yeah. well about it but so, I, much, I, so much sandler comedy is rooted in when is this character going to explode and so much sandler drama is rooted in how is this character going to yeah. explode? And I think that's, it's sort of, it plays with that a lot, but 
not only that, it's like a fantastic New York film. It's a fantastic sort of very tightly wound film. It's actually like an anxiety attack for an entire it's film. That still makes me not want to see. I know, but it, it, it pulls you in, and um, I mean, I've seen it Should twice it now anyway? in the cinema. Yeah, I, I like similarly no one likes having panic attacks but this is kind of <laughs> this is sort of you know when you're drawn in and you just you can't look away you're locked in you can't escape a lot of the the safety brothers films feel like that i remember seeing daddy long legs years ago and i liked good time kind of like what we were saying about rian johnson i've liked a lot of the stuff but haven't loved it and then along this came and this is incredible did you see in 40x where you were literally strapped in <laughs> unfortunately not i would fully yeah yeah they just sort of in inject adrenaline directly yeah. into you while you're watching it yeah. what, what i love about uncle james like, it is that <laughs> the, the filmmaking in it it is that kind of anxiety inducing like kind of handheld busy kind of a thing but the sound but, looks incredible but the other thing about it is that it's actually a really interesting kind of character study and a very good kind of tight screenplay with a lot of yeah very simple setup and payoff like it it, it actually manages to use all that kind of busy uh kind of jittery kind of stuff to distract you or to not distract you but to kind of divert you away from very well done simple kind of storytelling beats that's it's and like i think howard who alan sandler plays is one of the most kind of fascinating characters of, of like the last couple of years in film and just this really kind of interesting look at like addiction and yeah. and kind of downtrodden people trying to kind of yeah. eke out some kind of as he says a win for themselves he's terrible so i can't say, andrew yeah definitely yeah it's worth definitely. Seeing, even and, though you will feel horrible after watching and again it. it's very much part of the marginalized community help find justice for themselves with assistance of the keith stanfield genre yeah, um, yeah i think it belongs within that sort of bracket as well if we're being honest there's a, um, a, a great scene in it where he like makes his pitch and it's him like you can see why he's such a good salesman in a way because he is charming and you do kind of listen to him but he's so sweet beans at the same time and after that the immediate reaction of the other character is just like you are the most annoying person in the world. And it it sort of knows that. And yeah. he's annoying because you can't look away and you do find him endearing. And then you're also like, I, I talked to a, a friend who has sort of compared it to being the ultimate disaster movie where he, he saw as a child and as a very sort of anxiety uh, sort of prone child just couldn't stand everything going wrong. And he, he felt the exact same way in Uncut Gems that, no, no, what are you doing? Don't do that. That's well, terrible. To, to, to draw a comparison to that film and say something like this, really what you, what you see in Herod that I find so interesting is that just by never admitting defeat and never admitting that like everything's gone to hell that's that's how he kind of tries to succeed and like again wins, yeah. the rich people that you see in, in this and, and in other films that are kind of really prominent at the moment again the only real thing that separates them from other people is the the fact that they don't face consequences yeah. for yeah. things and and Howard is just really trying to kind of the secret his way into making that happen yeah. for himself. Just by and and people do that in and we we see the consequences of that in in our world today. People who are just adamant at shutting out the kind of negative effects of, of things that they do. Yeah, it's funny how much money there is in these days because this is uh, like um, we'll make a few make a few kind of you know small guy um, kind of like little. Little little movies that are um, uh, pun- little guys, punching big up, movie. punching up at the at the class system. Um, it, it'll only cost forty million dollars. <laughs> you gotta have bread and circuses. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will kind of say that, like I, 
listeners to this podcast will know I, I'm perhaps one of the more straight-laced individuals. Coming out of Uncut Gems, I kind of got gambling addiction, I feel. I kind of understood the agony and the ecstasy of it, and I kind of want to have a six-way parlay on something. I don't know what a six-way parlay is, but I know that I want it. I, I, I bet on the Irishman to win Best Picture. Did you have a six-way parlay? <laughs> was um, it in an was, accumulator? No, uh, Donald Clark recommended I do it, so I did it. So. <laughs> Come into his house. And now 1917 is racing ahead. Oh, I like... know. Ruined. Ruined. Yeah. Well, hey, this won't date the podcast at all. <laughs> um, all right, then. And Luke, what would you recommend? Uh, well, if you watch uh, this movie and then kind of have a, a hankering to kind of watch more murder mystery kind of stuff, um, I would recommend a movie called Wheat Farm. That's Eight Women, which is a French murder mystery musical, dark comedy, Christmas film. <laughs> Uh, it's 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 about these like uh, these eight women that that go to the big fam the stately family home over Christmas, uh, only to find that the patriarch of the family has been murdered overnight, and everyone's a suspect. You know, is it the virginal beloved daughter? Is it the bitter wife? Is it the ex-wife? Is it the you know gr- greedy mother-in-law? It's 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 really kind of fun and very kind of strange and and kind of fascinating in in these weird kind of ways it's because it is a musical but in a very french kind of way where characters will just stand very still and sing songs about lost love and betrayal and sadness and stuff i missed that part of the it's a musical (laughs) yeah and it's it's, sandwiched between murder mystery and christmas movies it's 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 also like it's also like a douglas sirk homage like to melodrama so again beautiful set design beautiful costuming and and things like that it's Catherine Deneuve Isabel Hubert uh, Emmanuel uh, Bayer from Mission Impossible Fanny Ardant like basically every French actress you've ever heard of it's a lot of fun strange movie but well worth kind of digging out and uh, I would recommend again if you're on a murder mystery trip I'd recommend Gosford Park um, it's fantastic I really I watched it, rewatched it over Christmas it is very very good also Rian Johnson's uh, previous films as well I'm, I'm quite fond of his work um, yeah, and that that would kind of be it in terms of recommendations. So also, you're saying, Darren, that listeners should watch The Last Jedi. That it's a fantastic piece of work. Can is... they contact you if they have an issue? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Read I'd, out your address. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Yeah, despite being somebody whose opinion of The Last yeah. Jedi is that I like it less than a lot of people, <laughs> yeah. but more than a lot of you're other like, people. To, to, <laughs> be clear, to be clear, I don't like this movie, but let me die on this hill. <laughs> <laughs> I will always use yours as a shield, Darren. <laughs> but uh, hashtag not your force people, shield. Um, see, these people are so wearied from from kind of throwing rocks at you all day about it. Then I just come on to the hill after the fact. Going, yeah, that movie is Here's my good. flag. Yeah, it, it, it kind of sucked, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Darren, come out here again, <laughs> which is great. Um, but yes, I. I would, I would recommend The Last Jedi, particularly having watched The Rise of Skywalker. It's amazing how, you why, know... Why would you do this to yourself? <laughs> how many times that. did you see The Rise of Skywalker? Uh, twice. Well, okay. Yeah. You would think once was enough. You would think zero times is enough, but uh, apparently not. Uh, but anyway, so um, what we're going to be doing is, because we released Little Women and 1917 sort of back-to-back on the week of the Oscars... We're gonna I take remember a, that. <laughs> we're going to take a bit of a break next week, uh, possibly. So uh, we'll be back the week after that. Uh, with, so our listeners can, can listen to other podcasts. 
because we're on a <laughs> we're break. on a break. Yeah, we won't hold it against you. Um, but yeah, we th- we thought that basically we kind of end on an, an ep- we take a break on an episode that we think people will enjoy and there'll be a lot to discuss, a lot to unpack, and maybe something you can rewatch or re- you know I won't say re-listen to. You don't ever need to re-listen to it the episode. Yeah, but if, um, if you're ever worried that there won't be like any two fifty like forever and that is the last episode, we have planned that we're going to fall out. <laughs> We've got it all perfectly planned. Uh, We've got an eight year plan. Alex actually knows this, which is very depressing. Um, But yeah, um, so we'll be back the week after that. Uh, We'll be kicking, we'll be watching Nicolas Cage in Left Behind with the wonderful Andy will be joining us. I'm not going to try to pronounce his surname. Mellowish. Mellowish. Andy Mellowish. I'm going to try. <laughs> I presume this is a bottom two. This is a bottom 100 <laughs> episode, to be clear. Um, we didn't know. Well, okay. I knew what it was going in, but I don't think Andrew and Andy knew is what it was. Is that the Christian one? That is the, the it has, it has a pilot. There's a disaster that happens. The rapture while happens. Okay. The pilot or something? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's like a Lost movie. If Lost were like a Christian thing, it would be yeah, interesting anyway. But so join it's us. It's like the left one. Oh, and, and I haven't seen it yet, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so join us in two weeks when we'll be talking about Left Behind. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. That was fun. So much. Yeah, no, it was really-